Talk Recorded live. Hi, this is Michael Adams. Something for the truth. We're going to define it. I'm going to have to redo the recording of the conversation with Ryan Taylor. Uh, that happened Saturday night, Sunday morning. In the first, just, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. I ended up doing something that was not right, and I uh, didn't mean to, but looking back, uh, yeah, something was mentioned that needs not to be public on air, so, yeah, I was going to have to do it over here, so we're starting at uh, 12 minutes and 25 seconds, so if it seems kind of a little strange in the beginning, that's the reason why, Okay. Also, I noticed there's an article today uh, coming out of the uh, Salt Lake Tribune, and it's called A Mormon Mystery Returns. Who is, ha- who is Heavenly Mother? And I find it's interesting that it's popping out now when you can see that the uh, uh, Rome and their daughter churches are starting, you know, the ecumenical move- movement, and they're starting to join each other. And you know, as a Mormon, I had no idea that there was a heavenly mother. I knew there, well, I I guess there was, but I didn't, it was never talked about. They never were never registered. I, I never registered. So, anyways, um, seems to me uh, an interesting article to read. Uh, yeah, Mormon mystery. She's the ultimate mom, and member revere, members revere her, but they know little beyond that. And I had no idea that we even revered that. And of course, you'll find out in this article a reason why. Even as a Mormon missionary, <clears throat> Sunday on Sunday, Mormon speakers may share stories of super moms who run marathons, homeschool their ten children help out the homeless shelters, and sing Bach Cantetos. All all while leading daily prayer, scripture study, and blogging about it. Team members, however, will hear about the greatest mom of all, Heavenly Mother. Though she has been acknowledged by Mormon prophets and celebrated in Elias hymns, um, Mother in Heaven is absent from missionary material, religious manuals, youth programs, and for the most part, scriptural texts. And I had no idea that we were spit when I was a Mormon that we did that. I had no idea. But just goes to show you how sneaky and sinister this religion is and how much it mimics, it's like a blending of uh, Freemasonry, Islam, Catholicism, and very occult. So, uh, this is not surprising given that the police present a conundrum for the Utah-based faith. While more talk of God 
the mother would appeal to some potential converts yearning for more female recognition. <laughs> Goodness gracious. It might become entwined in a push to ordain women or in feminist politics. And I imagine that's the direction they're all going. You see that also going in even the Roman Catholic Church. Um and it will happen. Why is they all they yeah, be all inclusive, right? Uh, you know, let's all get together in unity and apostasy and sing Kumbaya all the way to hell, huh? It seems to be that way. <clears throat> yes, it would underscore Mormonism uniqueness, but it also could turn off those who come from traditional Christianity. And, uh, you know, if you come from biblical, historical Christianity, you won't even get there anyways. You recognize the apostasy before you even consider joining this, uh, one of Satan's religions here. Allowing more outsiders to view Latter-day Saints as non-Christians. No matter what the institution does, more and more LDS women are finding solace empathy and identification and the notion of a mother God. And uh, I've heard now numerous folks, and it might be the case that the mother God, the mother of heaven, the heavenly, uh, is actually Satan. (laughs) If you go further in this, you're going to see why. Uh, So we talked about this uh, yeah, so we're talking about mother gods. Most do not pray to a female god, but many do write, talk, and whisper about her. I never heard it once. And some unexpectedly sense her presence. Now, this sounds very Roman Catholic, doesn't it? Fatima, uh, Mary, um, the Queen of Heaven. Is it, after all, one of the face boldest of theological contradictions? Heavenly Mother, says Elizabeth Hammond, a Boston Latter-day Saint who does plan to include the female deity in her Mother's Day talk. Quote, it was set, excuse me, is what sets Mormons or Mormonism apart as potentially the most empowering and woman-friendly form of Christianity, end the quote. And, of course, Mormonism is not Christianity, no matter how hard they try to say that. Everything from the name of this religion is, is deceptive, and it's very sinister. And I feel greatly for those who are trapped in this system. And I pray that you will come out of it. And I know it's a scary proposition because it means that you're going to lose a lot of things in this world. But as Christ says, what profit the man if he gained the whole world but lose his own soul? She is the church's, quote, ace in the hole, end of quote, Hammond says. Her existence, quote, leaves us a huge field of potential to develop an exciting modern egalitarian theology, end of quote. It's no wonder, then, that some Mormon women are stepping lightly into the mystery of who and what she is. 
from the beginning, all this Mother God talk merged in Mormonism and 19th century beginnings when founder Joseph Smith declared that God is a literal is a literal father of Jesus and all human spirits. <clears throat> so in other words, what the Mormons believe is that God has and mother God are popping out babies left and right. That's what the group is having sex all the time. This is truth, by the way. No matter how hard they try to deny it. And by the way, that's what they believe is too, that those who uh, are faithful Mormons and go through the temple and stay married and do everything that the hierarchy of the Mormon church says, that they will end up with their own little planet doing the same thing, having sex and producing a bunch of babies for an eternity. That's the reality. Of course, they don't want us to talk about that because it's, it's quite bizarre. And it doesn't go along with the Bible at all. Um, it, it made sense to Smith, of course it would, and subsequent LDS leaders that Heavenly Father must have a wife. Quote, in, in the heavens are parents single? No. The thought makes reasons stare. Truth is reason. Truth eternal. Truth is reason, huh? Truth eternal tell, tells me I a mother there. And to quote LDS poet, a poet, yeah, poet and early Mormon women's leader, Eliza Snow, penned in the poem, quote, invocation or the eternal father and mother, end of quote, which became the hymn, quote, oh, my father, end of quote. According to researcher Linda P. Wilcox, author of the 1980s groundbreaking article, quote, the Mormon concept of a mother in heaven, end of quote. Real original, isn't it? Of course, they think so. They blindly think so. <clears throat> of course, they stole this straight from Mystery Babylon. LDS uh, President Wil uh, Wilford Woodruff, quote, gave Snow credit for originating the idea, end of quote. That the hymn is a revelation, though it was given unto us by a woman, and the quote, Wilcox quotes Woodruff as saying, quote, President Joseph F. Smith claimed that God revealed that principle, that we have a mother as well as a father in heaven, to Joseph Smith, and the quote, writes Wilcox. Well, all I can tell you is anybody shows up in your, in your life saying that God revealed something to them that's a, Outside of the Bible, because that's our revelation, right? That's the Word of God in the, in the Scriptures. So, uh, yeah, I would turn away and run, <laughs> really. No matter how charming and pleasant they are and how wonderful their smile is. Uh, so anyway, so Wilcox, Wright's Wilcox, quote, 
that Smith revealed it to Snow, his polygamous wife, and that Snow was inspired being a poet to put it into verse, end of quote. <clears throat> yeah, with all his other wives that Joe Smith had, including teenage, very young teenage girls. Guy was a pervert, just like so many other ones. In fact, he was an awful lot like Jim Jones. And um, once again, you can look on a previous recording where I just played the videos, but of course, Source Family and how cults like LDS and SDA and JWS get started on my show. And, of course, people will, and many will disagree with what I say there, and I understand. Some will see it's a very far stretch, but is it really? Is it really? Okay. Where were we at? Okay. Mormonism understanding of creation is that, quote, God's, the gods went down to organize men in their own image. And the image of God to form they him, male and female, from they them, end of quote. In the, this view, quote, God comprises an exalted man and woman, end of quote, says Fiona Gibbons, co-author with her husband Terrell of The God Who uh, Weeps, how Mormonism makes sense of life, the belief that, quote, we are children of heavenly parents is a radical break with traditional Christianity, end of quote. Not really. It's just recycling of old Gnosticism and heresy. Nothing really original about Mormonism at all. Except that, you know, it has a lot more, you know, some, I guess if we rephrase that, it does have some more uh, contemporary elements of a uh, cult. <clears throat> like I said, it's a blending of uh, all the other false religions out there, um, plus with their own little bit of heresy. And in 2011, Brigham Young University uh, professor David L. Paulson and his student Martin uh, Polito found some 600 references to Heavenly Mother and Mormon and academic discourse from 1844 to the present. Now, there's a lot of things that happened in 1844 or in that area, right? Certainly. Amazing the amount of, uh, you know, it's like a starting point of all these cults, these American cults, inspired and led by the Jesuits. And leading up to the Civil War, and uh, thank you very much, Satan. <laughs> okay, she is depicted, they write in their BYU Studies article, quote, a mother there a survey of historical teachings about mother in heaven, end of quote. As, quote, a procreator and parent, as a divine person and a co-creator 
<laughs> of worlds as a framer of the plan of salvation with the Father and as a cons- as concerned a loving parent involved in our moral probation, end quote. Uh, maybe I did hear this and it just went over my head. It never really fazed me. But maybe they didn't talk about a mother in heaven, but they just kind of sit in passing. Paulson and Polito see their research as debunking the idea that LDS leaders don't mention Heavenly Mother much and neither should members. Others are not so sure. Believe but don't pray. In the late 1980s, some Mormon women began exploring the history and theology of Heavenly Mother. A few even mentioned her in prayers and speeches, which triggered consternation among male LDS leaders. So it should. In uh, 1991, then uh, Apostle Gordon B. Hinckley, I think that's the one who turned out to be a homosexual and a pedophile, but I'm not 100% sure about that, but there's people proclaiming that. I would not be surprised. It's usually when you uh, practice this type of adulterous behavior and you get up to that the hierarchy of these false religions, it seems to be a common practice that you end up doing these things. So, I think it, I guess it's recompense from God. I wouldn't trust anybody that calls himself an apostle, a prophet, uh, a quorum of the 70, or anything else in that matter these days. And I recommend the same thing for you. And I know there's people out there that have men in their lives that are claim that, and you love them dearly. It doesn't mean that they're teaching you the truth or exploiting you and practicing the priestcraft. The Nicolaitan doctrine, a separation of the priest class, priestcraft, from the laity. Okay, but Mormons do not pray to her, he said, because Jesus Christ taught us to pray to our Heavenly Father. A few months before Hinckley's speech, Janice Elred, a devout Mormon living in Provo with her husband and nine children, gave Mother's Day talk in which she discussed Heavenly Mother. It was well received and recounts in a recent Sunstone article it's a nice name, Sunstone, titled The One Who Never Left Us. Several congregants even asked for copies. A year after Hinckley's remarks, however, Aldridge gave a speech at Sunstone Symposium, quote, towards the Mormon theology of God and Mother, end quote. So, anyways, let's see. Um... I don't know. Uh, let me bring in uh, Ryan now. 
finish up the article real fast. Hello? Hey, Ryan, how's it going? Good, how are you? Okay, just reading some articles, uh, waiting for you. Um, actually, reading an article right now from Salt Lake Tribune about the, uh, the mother of heaven, <laughs> the Mormon doctrine of uh, the heavenly mother. Did you know that? Who's the heavenly mother? I did not. Well, you know, there's this thing about, you know, Mormons, you know, they believe that uh, our uh, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother right now in heaven are, they, you and I were produced by them having intercourse. Did you know that? No. Yeah, that we're all of our spirit, our spirit beings, and then we come here on earth, but we're produced by Heavenly Father having sex with Heavenly Mother. And, of course, then that's the ultimate goal, right, with Mormons as far as going to the temple with your wife. And then if you're a faithful and devout mother and father, excuse me, uh, uh, couple, married couple, whatever, husband and wife, that you'll end up uh, inheriting your own planet where you will do the same thing as Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, having sex for eternity and pumping out more spirits. And we're not making this up, by the way. <laughs> no, it, it sounds that it, it kind of makes it kind of makes more sense in the in the fact that you know, depending on how well you did things here on Earth, that you and your spiritual life or whatever will do the same thing for some other planet. You know, now who do they attribute the Heavenly Mother to? Is that like the Holy Spirit, or is that? Just some other uh, well, when we get through, when we start, uh, let me read some more into this article, and we'll discover what that answer is. And uh, so here we go. And so right now we're talking about this uh, all red woman who was giving speeches about the Heavenly Mother and started causing that leadership in the church consternation. Because, and then, well, you know, it's part of the doctrine, but they, they keep it suppressed. You know, when I was a Mormon missionary, we never talked about that. It was never part of the discussions. And in fact, you know, I was thinking when I started this, I was like, you know, I don't really remember anybody ever talking about it. Maybe a, a few of the women, when they got up and bore their testimony on Fast and Testimony Weekend or Sunday, that they mentioned that, you know, Heavenly Mother, but it, it was never, like, taught in Sunday school, or, but it's, it's part of their doctrine, so let's hear what they, they have to say here. Uh, a year after Hinckley remarks, this is uh, Hinckley saying you're, you're not supposed to pray to your Heavenly Mother. <laughs> However, Alders gave a speech in, in Sun, at Sunstone Symponium, quote, towards the Mormon theology of God the Mother. Okay, God the Mother. In it, in subsequent uh, pieces, Alders didn't advocate praying to Mother in Heaven, nor says she did so herself. She did, however, argue that God, the Mother, is the Holy Spirit. Quote, I proposed 
that the eternal God is both a man and a woman, eternal father and eternal mother. Now tell me, just if you can think back, line in your, what other kind of, does this sound kind of like Gnosticism? <laughs> what does this sound like to you? Is this like Mystery Babylon of old? <laughs> Uh, a lot of things, you know, the, the, the false trinity, the uh, father, uh, mother, uh, father, mother, son thing. Yeah, it is. That's what. That's just. Uh, that, that's my that. So, but it's interesting that uh, God, the Mother. We probably don't need to go much further in that, but people certainly can read that. If you go, if you want to find a lot of interesting insights on the Mormon Church and what's going on, go to Salt Lake Tribune. And go to their face section, and a lot of times you get some really revealing things that you'll never hear here, actually in the church itself. So here we go, um, and it seems to be uh, a, a something that's believed in the church that uh, the God, the Mother, is the Holy Ghost, the Holy, you know. Spirit, which then begs to, uh, the question, you know, if you, what is that? I mean, how can that be? Who else, uh, who else uh, is described as the Holy Spirit and a woman, the Queen of Heaven? Um, first things that I think about are Mary, Mary worship. But even more importantly, Satan. It's definitely a satanic principle of practice. So, so anyways, I know, <laughs> you know, my expertise, my friend, is, is not sharing and preaching the gospel. That's folks like you. So my job is to expose the, <laughs> the endless her- heresies that are out there that most people don't even realize. So. But uh, if anybody wants to learn more about this particular article, you certainly can go to, uh, once again, Salt Lake Tribune, and look under Faith, the Faith section, and then look under, I would say, the Mother of Heaven, or, and you can find more about that. So I didn't even learned something are new about on, Are we on the air right now? Absolutely. We've been, uh, this show actually okay. started at 10.20, so, but, um, oh, I thought that was... Oh man! I think I've been twenty minutes from now. I know. I figured that's what it, I was thinking to myself. Either you got family issues, or I was thinking to myself, you know, you know, because of the time difference. <laughs> you probably, I I thought I thought you were two hours difference. It's three hours. My bad. I'm no. I would have given you a heads up had I I I, I, I thought I was twenty minutes early. No, you're not. All right, so 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 that's cool. It's, it's been one of those weekends. I mean, I mean, that's like. I had to cancel that show with uh, James Perloff because I was just too tired and didn't want to deal with it. I, I think it was a good thing because I think, you know, when you get really tired, there's a good chance you end up getting in an argument with people, if you don't, especially if you don't agree with something they're saying. You know what I mean? At least I can get that way, argumentative when I'm tired and irritable. So <laughs> I probably was a good idea. Yeah. And to show respect for him and to anybody else in the audience. So. But, uh, yeah. How's it going, my bro? Good, good. Long day, but you know. Yes, I do. <laughs> I have my son today too. 
And it's, I imagine it's pretty warm too there, right? How does the you get your AC situation taken care of? Yeah, we we did, and and oddly enough, the past couple of days have actually been really nice weather here. Um, so that that's been really nice, and you know. We got everything fixed, so we're ready for the the hot. We're going to be up in the 90s again, I think, this week. So, and we're not too far away from the hundreds. The hundreds are coming, coming very soon. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we we got we got that stuff figured out. It's just you know, I mean, we're in the 80s. We're in the mid 80s and high 80s, and it looks like at least till Monday, maybe even longer than that. And that's really rare for for us. So this time of year, especially. Usually you want to have, like, this, being this warm. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm in the Great Lakes region. <laughs> oh, wow. We never yeah, got that, that warm. We get close to it in the 70s. Most of them get close to 80, but never do you get the mid-80s and high-80s. But that's what's... So, anyways, we had a, I had to get the old baby pool out for my son yesterday, the neighbor kid, and fill it up because it was so hot. You know, <laughs> they loved it, man. Yeah. And they're the oh, yeah. little boys at the age, and they got their squirt guns and buckets, and they had big the, the old water fight. They loved it. So. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So, anyways, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we talked about the whole idea. You know, I shared folks with uh, Ryan yesterday. I was like, man, I get so worn out doing this. I do feel like it's my part of my calling right now. It really, I feel <laughs> to expose a lot of the, uh, the heresies that are out there, the false teachings. Um, and also, you know, what's going on for folks, you know, as we, God calls us all to come out of this, this false systems and Mr. Babylon. But, um, I tell you, I, I, there's times I just need the gospel and I need to hear somebody who knows how to share it. And once again, Ryan's been willing to come on board and share us, share with us his faith and understanding of the Word of God and the Gospel. So I don't know. I don't know where to go with it. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, since I'm coming in, since I'm coming in late, um, do you want to start? Do you want to restart, or do you just want to keep going from? Do you just want to pick it up from here? Oh, we'll just keep we'll just keep going from here. So. That's all right. I mean, all okay. I did all I did is they have a lengthy, uh, uh, basically, uh, reading of articles, you know, introduction. So I read. Uh, yeah. There's nothing that you know. If you want to hear it, you see, I can listen again if you want. Probably know most of it anyway. So probably on your right. Well, the only new thing that you would have learned from me this evening was uh, about the the mother of heaven. <laughs> the Mormons first. <laughs> well, I have, a, I have a question about that. So, the Holy Spirit, how did the Holy Spirit conceive in Mary? That would be like mother and... Uh-huh. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question. And you know what? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I imagine, you know... Uh, Hopefully, uh, well, hopefully, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm really surprised is this, you know, this lesbian, gay, bisexual thing that their movement in the church, I'm surprised 
They haven't brought that up. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, technically they could say we've been pro, you know, we've been, uh, you know, pro uh, same gender relations and all, all along. In fact, our doctrine teaches that the he, she, Holy Spirit had, I don't know. I mean, there's so, so many, I mean, that's the least, that's the least, well, I shouldn't say the least, but that's one among many unfortunate misteachings of Mormonism. I mean, it's, it, that's just one of many, but you could say one of one of the least concerns. You know, primarily they teach, you know, a different God than that of the Bible, a different Christ than that of the Bible. So it's no wonder, no mystery that then God, the Holy Spirit, is taught differently in the Mormon Church than that of Scripture. So we're kind of from the get-go off on the wrong foot there. But that's just that would be my intellectual question to pose. The first question, I would say, well, okay, then how then does the whole Mary and Holy Spirit thing happen since uh, you guys... Anyway, that's just a side note, but... Well, this is what the... uh, How Mormons would probably deal with that. They'd probably say, well, that's just, you know, some folks in the church feel that it's that way, but others feel it's another way, you know what I mean? One of the brilliant strategies that the Jesuits did when creating the Mormon church was to make it very subjective and uh, what's the way of describing it where you uh, it's very uh, not relative it's not relativism it's um, I guess it's subjective a lot of their things are subjective you know they're just like well that's how I interpret it but that's how you but it's okay if you interpret it differently you know what I mean well yeah very flexible with interpretation you can kind of adapt and mold and morph into whatever fits better for you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and of course, that's that old classic thing, you know, that we that I've been accused of saying, and many Christians do. Uh, of course, Mormonism is not Christianity, but you know, this whole thing of uh, let me rephrase it: not Christ, Christian, but religion, religious people, people of their own faith. Uh, say, well, you know, it's not it's not a Salvatic issue. Right, you know what I mean? Mm. But in reality, it is. <laughs> it's absolutely not so Absolutely. Because, you know, I, I, if you don't know the true God, if you're praying to the, a, a false God or believing in a false God, I mean, I, what more Salvatic of an issue is there? <laughs> well, again, it's primarily a different gospel. I mean, since we're on the note, if for some reason, by any chance, uh, a Mormon will come across this for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of telling the truth in love. I would simply say that, you know, for anyone out there who, um, you know, any professing Christian out there who either practices Mormonism or has Mormon friends that they consider a part of the Christian body, um, I would have to say, just as a heads up, um, we are unified, as Paul said, we are unified under the gospel. That is what makes up the body of Christ. Uh-huh. And so when you have somebody preaching a different gospel, and, and, you know, this is the problem with, you know, American evangelicalism right now, is that we simply say that the gospel is that Jesus loves you, or that, you know, you, you need to have him in your heart, or something like that. And so it, it begins to morph and begins to evolve and be, become more compatible with differences. Um, and instead of it just being a simple denominational issue, we've now incorporated in actually false 
religions. Um, now, this has been called ecumenism for a long, long time, but for those not familiar with ecumenism, you know, it's just simply a rebranding of Christianity that's a little bit more adaptable, a little bit more permissive in allowing um, the name of Jesus to be all that unifies, when in reality, Paul said, as indwelt and is carried along by God the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul um, to us in his word that we are unified under the gospel. And so primarily all of our issues, whether, you know, Michael and all the things that you address and all the things that you bring to light, and, you know, my little disclaimer is, is, you know, uh, how would it go? I, I, the, the views of the host are not necessarily the, you know, the views of the, you know, the following guest, you know, <laughs> but that's just because I don't, I'm not following that stuff like I once used to, but yeah. in all the stuff that you're bringing to light, you know, I think your primary focus and purpose behind doing that is so that people come to know the true Christ of God, the true biblical Jehovah, Yahweh, Lord, God, the father, God, the Holy Spirit, all these different terms that many religions claim, they hold one ad adaptation to, they hold various, you know, titles and things like that. Well, that isn't what unifies us. What unifies us is the gospel. So whatever we bring to the forefront needs to be based on what that is. And anybody who comes saying, you know, whether they come in the name of Jesus, whether they come using scripture in the contradict the gospel, we've got a problem. You know, we've got a big problem. So, and that's what I tried to focus on. You know, it doesn't matter what, you know, I mean, there's so many things going on out there. You've got, you've got politics, you've got economics, you have, you know, uh, viruses and, you know, uh, weather conditions. And now, you know, you can get into religion. You have, you know, the Middle East, you have Israel, you have, um, Ecumenism, you have this this, this rebranding of modern-day Christianity and things like that, all these things going on. And literally, you can pick any one of those and become an expert in them. I mean, it, it, you could go down any of those paths and spend a lifetime on it and still be learning something new. Yeah. But the focus should always be in anything that we're trying to dig up or, you know, lay to rest or however you want to look at it, it's got to be behind that premise. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's a very difficult thing to do today because it's, there's no catchy, you know, uh, for, for Bible-believing Christians, there's really no catchy phrases that, you know, people will like hearing us say that kind of make us popular, you know, or something like that. We kind of have to, we kind of have to unpack some of the misconceptions about, you know, what has been commonly taught about salvation or Jesus or you know, the Bible and its sufficiency and its, you know, its uh, it being God's word and the sole authority over the life of a Christian and the church, the true church. We kind of have to unpack some of these problems. You know, I think I sent, uh, I sent you, I, I know I did it. Yeah, I yeah. didn't get it for some, I did. I, I sent you an email today. Yes, you did. Well, and that, that right there is, is the primary, the email I sent Michael was uh, on free will. And, I, and, you know, free will versus, uh, you know, uh, God having sovereign, sovereign control, sovereign reign over his creation. 
And I think the issue is, is we have to kind of unpack the modern day evangelical point of view, which is as long as you've heard that Jesus loves you, and maybe you've even said a little prayer about your sin or something like that, then you're all set. You're all good to go. But this isn't, this isn't approaching salvation with the proper view of who God is. This is approaching salvation based on what we'd like it to be, what, what, you know, the parts of it that make it palatable and acceptable to us. You know, that's what's kind of, and you have to unpack that nowadays. You can't just come up with a quippy quote, you know, and, and use that. And people say, oh, that makes sense. You know, we have to open up our Bibles, you know, slow down, read what it says, and share that with people. You know, and, and that's part of evangelism, but what about outside of evangelism? What about inside your everyday life? And this is how we can tie the gospel in a practical sense. You know, the, the purpose of God revealing that we belong to him is that we may serve him, that we may know him, as any father would desire from their children, you know, that we would live for him and for his glory. And so that is the primary focus. It's for our assurance. It's for, you know, our personal salvation. And that is the primary focus. And that will lead, that will bear fruit in evangelism in that we want all of our brothers and sisters in Christ to, you know, know the Father. I mean, this is what the the model of the church is. This is the point of evangelism. You know, and that's why when you go out and see somebody, I'll give you both sides of the angle. You have somebody out there preaching you. You know, they, they'll use the Bible, they'll use Jesus, but they'll put all of the focus on you. And they'll paint it in a very positive light. I mean, they'll have some of the most beautiful buildings you've ever been in. They'll have some of the most state-of-the-art media equipment you've ever seen. So they'll have some like of the glass, the glass cathedral. What are you talking about? <laughs> Well, one of many. One of many. I mean, they're they're starting to modernize all that, by the way. I mean, they're not just doing the ornate, you know, artful, you know, uh, cathedral-style stuff anymore. Certainly that, that's, that's there, and I, I would include that. But I'm, I'm talking about for the next generation of non-churchgoers, how they're making it almost more like a, you know, like a mini, um, you know, I don't, you know, a mini play yard for the kids, um, kind of like a conference, hotel conference uh, set up for the, for the adults and a, and a really cool kind of, you know, uh, coffee shop slash underground um, hole-in-the-wall, like, you know, youth group, you know, scene. Um, you know, they're, 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 I'm talking about the modern-day, some of these modern-day churches that are just so, like, I mean, you know, They've got everything. I mean, they've got a Starbucks there. They, you know, they. I mean, they're cooking burgers out, in the, you know, you know, outside with some of the best barbecues you've ever seen. Or, or I've even seen somewhere they, you know, they call up in and out and have them cater to the event there. And again, it's not that any of these individual things in and of themselves are wrong. What I'm saying is, is you know, I'll put it in the words of Spurgeon to clarify. You know, they're building a circus to attract people. You know, and if you build the circus and attract a bunch of people, then they're not coming to hear about Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of sin. They're coming for the circus. Um, in fact, some people would put it more harshly in our modern day, even not even historical references like Spurgeon. We've got modern day people uh, 
preachers and teachers using the vernacular like uh, they're building, you know, goat farms. <laughs> you know, that mo- a lot of these modern-day churches are just simply goat farms where goats are come to be amused versus hearing about Christ and who he is and having, having him taught to us from the word. See, what a lot of people don't understand about the church is that we go to church, we are a part of church, we are the church, in that we get to come and worship God as he has told us he likes to be worshipped, the way that he wants to be worshipped, the way that his children will worship him. And and you've got to remember the gospel is not a request, it's a command. And it's a command that can only be obeyed by God's people. And so the most humbling aspect of the gospel is that every single one of us deserves the exact same thing. We all deserve it. It's like saying all of mankind is on death row for his sin. And that God, according to his justice and his mercy, has picked from before the foundations of the world those who he would give to Christ as part of Christ's or in response to Christ's obedience to the Father who sent him. Uh, so this is, an, this is an agreement that Almighty God, the triune God, God the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this is what he decided upon. This is how it would play out. This is how he would reveal himself to, to his creation and to his children. And that's the most humbling aspect of it, is that we, you and I, could not go to anyone else and say, oh, how come you don't understand this? How come you don't get this? You know, I mean, if you don't accept this, then you're going to just, you know, it's all bad news for you. Well, the problem with that is that we're not recognizing that neither do we deserve it. And so that's why you have all of historic Christianity, you have the apostles and disciples even setting an example for us, and that we go and preach the gospel with this in mind, that God is stopping, that he's already picked whom he will have, and that we are simply preaching the gospel and sharing it, proclaiming it, living according to the command of the gospel, the freedom that comes in the gospel, the forgiveness that comes with the gospel. We're living that for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his great name, you know, to testify that we belong to him by him working in and through us. See, in other words, we're not in control. God is. And we're simply obeying his command as children that he is calling out this family by the preaching and teaching of the word, going into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, discipling nations. I mean, all these things that we find in the New Testament. In other words, there's a freedom in that we aren't compelled. We aren't uh, commanded to make people believe, to convince them by, you know, intellect or by deep, deep knowing of theology, so on and so forth. But the importance of the gospel is, is that the deeper you know it, the better for you. Well, you know, if, if that makes sense. You know, it's between you and God in that regard, and God may use that to bless others. There's no aspect of Christianity that solely belongs to us, but we shouldn't forget how personal and intimate and individual God is in dealing with his children. Just think of a big family. You know, you have a good father, this, this, this being God the Father, 
who knows how to deal with the family as a whole and who knows how to deal with each of his children individually. You know, and that's why we'd all have the set of standards, the house rules, the, 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 and I would never classify the Bible in, in just that, that sense, but it's certainly part of it. You know, you've got, you know, how the church is to deal with one another. You have the, you have the very word of God explaining how he wants to be worshipped, uh, you know, by whom he will be worshipped, what we're supposed to do with what he has revealed to us, you know, and all that. And there's a freedom in that, because it, instead of going and, and trying to convince people using all sorts of man-made methods, that we get to walk by faith and not by sight and simply trust that when we share the scripture with someone, that their understanding is not determinate upon us, but that it's determinate upon God, the Holy Spirit, opening the heart and mind and ears of that person. And that their understanding is not going to come by their effort or mine, but according to God's good pleasure and will in them. And our striving towards goodness, our striving towards the righteousness of Christ in the sense that, you know, look at the example that Christ set for us is only, only from the aspect of knowing that God the Father is the one who's done all the work necessary through His Son for my salvation, and through God the Holy Spirit is working on me through sanctification. And so when I'm tested or tried or being chastened or suffering through trial and tribulation, these are all methods that Paul says to rejoice in because it's building character, it's correcting us, it's removing sins in our life that we might be fighting for, fighting to hang on to, and that these, all these things, you know, are his work, but that our, when we begin to desire to do those things, what, you know, what, what I'll just say is our strength, you know, when, when we begin to desire that for ourselves, this is not described as salvific, this is not described as, as self-sanctification, this is described in the Bible as maturity. Is like a, a child being raised up and being matured to desire what the Father desires. So people will say, well, Ryan, if God's doing the work in salvation and doing the work in sanctification, then what are you doing? And see, that's the whole point, is that God is God and I am not. God is the one who has to do it, otherwise I am I'm a vessel. But see, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a vessel, I'm clay. You know, I am a created being. I'm not the creator. I don't, I have to go based on my father. I have to, uh, I have to be led by my shepherd. I have to be molded by my potter. But as he does this, he is, is, because he's made us in his image, he is, again, like a good father, he is shaping and molding us to desire him and what he wants and that he be glorified in it. And anytime we want the glory or we want the credit, that's not, that's not evidence, that's not fruit of God the Holy Spirit working in us because he's always going to point us to glorifying God. And not with false humility, not with, you know, oh, I do, you know, in the name of God or I do this for God as a justification. No, there's other aspects we look at as well. But I'm talking about for the individual to know, to, to walk, and talk by faith, that's essentially the dynamic that you're always going to be running into. You know, uh, okay, here I am striving again to convince my neighbor or my friend and, 
you know, I'm, I mean, I'm giving them everything. I'm giving them history. I'm giving them Bible, and they're still not getting it. Right. And we have to remember that that's not happening by our our strength or theirs. That I didn't somehow come into understanding the gospel or somehow come into understanding God in and of myself. So I just simply share it peacefully, as gently as I can. And I'm not talking about when we're dealing with someone who's opposing Scripture, someone who's, you know, lying about Scripture, that we take a different approach there. We mark them, we say, in error, and we avoid them. And we tell other people, hey, this person's not repenting of their views, you know, uh, heads up, you know, stay away. And uh, that's, that's a whole other subject. So that's how we kind of have to, we have to present, you know, the why is the gospel necessary? How does it work in our life? And why should it be our constant focus and, you know, our reasoning behind why we do this or why we do that? You know, I mean, I'm trying to lay some of that out as our kind of our, our foundation, our, our kind of the groundwork here is uh, because I need it, because I still sin, because I'm not perfected, you know, um, that, I mean, it should always be my focus personally, but also in dealing with other people, it's, it's, it's wise to have a good understanding of the power and the peace that comes with the gospel in dealing with other people because it can be very frustrating. And we can be tempted to think that it's by our doing that somebody comes to understanding who Christ is, when in reality, God is the one who's responsible for that. And, uh, and then it also kind of helps us with our kind of the path that we set before us in our life and, you know, what we choose to do and how we choose to behave and act and those sorts of things. And um, that is the gospel having its impact in my life. You know, because it, it can be a very assuring thing to see God working in and through you on sins that you used to once struggle with, but now, by His grace and His mercy, He's brought you away from that. And so there's this kind of this tug of war, as Paul said, between the flesh and, you know, what the Spirit wants. You know, this back and forth, and God is revealing Himself to you in the process of dealing with your sin. He's humbling you. He's having you exalt Christ. Focus on Him and what He's done for you. What He's capable of, so on and so forth, and 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 showing you your weakness. Or you know, again, that goes with humbling. You know, back and forth. And then, as you see God doing this work in your life, there's this assurance that I belong to Him. That that I depend upon Him solely as a created being. I depend upon my Creator, my Savior, my God and King, you know, for all things. Not only what I eat, but how I think, what I read, what I listen to, what I look at, what I say. All those things now, let everything you eat, drink, now see, all of a sudden it's an all-consuming, you know, aspect. Um, God becomes more and more, uh, how should I put this, um, God carries us along through the work of the Holy Spirit to understand Him throughout our walk with Him. He's revealing Himself to us. And so, you know, this will, we will begin to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not of Michael, not of Lion, but we'll begin to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that becomes a great delight because, again, not only does it come with the assurance that we belong to Him and that we're rooted, that we're truly founded in the in the vine, 
you know, but that we belong to him as a child. Those are our assurances. And a lot of, I'm telling you right now, this, this goes against all of man's logic. This actually shows the wisdom of God. Wow. Because man cannot boast in this whatsoever. And what seems foolish to man in this regard is that, no, no, not possible. No, God can't, God's not doing that. And see, because we want to believe that he needs our cooperation in it. That in fact, that that's somehow his loving nature. That's how it's described nowadays. The loving nature of God is that he wants you to choose him. But here's what the Bible says. That God showed his love for us in that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's how God showed his love for us. That's how God shows his love for us. That's how God will continually remind us of how much he loves us. I sent my son to pay your price. And I vindicated him. I proved him to be who he said he was in the flesh by raising him up from the dead. And in that, your high priest, Christ, the mediator, has not only atoned, has paid the price for your sin, has satisfied the wrath of God completely for all the sins that you have committed, are committing, and will commit. This is where faith comes into play. This is where repent and believe comes into play. But that he is interceding for you on your behalf. While Satan accuses you and says, look at their sin. They sin in thought and deed all day long. And they pride themselves when they don't outwardly sin. These, these, these created beings you've made here, God, look at them. They stink. Yeah, I mean, he probably uses way worse language, but nevertheless, you get what I'm saying. He, just, he does nothing but rail against. And then Christ intercedes for us. And who do you think has the ear of God the Father? Who do you think, who do you think's prayers are successful? And so that's what, that's what we need to be reminded of. That's what we need to be, you know, pointed to whenever we're either struggling with sin or going through, you know, a, a struggle or a problem in our life. We have to be, like, reminded because of our sinful nature that God is in control. That, yes, believe it or not, that when I preach his word, even if the whole world laughs, God says that he's glorified. You want to know why? Because when I preach God's word properly and in context, he's glorified in that he has every right to judge those whom he will judge, and he has every right to have mercy upon whomever he desires to give mercy to. He's glorified either way because his son is being proclaimed, his word is being declared. Remember the prophets of the Old Testament? You know, uh, you got all these guys today saying they're just like the prophets of the Old Testament. <laughs> oh, here's the funny thing. You want to be a prophet like the prophets of the Old Testament? Pull out your Bible and read it. And tell people what it says, and you'll be a prophet in that sense. Does that make sense? You, they, what did the prophets of well, they, they do? To me, it does, certainly. I mean, what else is there? I mean, this is... That's it. That's that's our revelation. That's um, our truth. That's God speaking to us. Yeah. 
as I mentioned earlier in this recording, he said, you know, if, if anybody comes to you and says, hey, I have a personal revelation <laughs> uh, from God, and God told me this, and, uh, you know, good idea to just turn away and run. Because <laughs> that person yeah. but bad news. <laughs> There's no need for any more personal revelation of any kind that I can think of. Uh, do you? Can you think of it and a reason for that? Well, if I wanted to make a lot of money, I mean, that might be a good reason. <laughs> I just say God's speaking to me, and, you know, see, here's the thing. We don't need direct revelation anymore right. because all revelation has been revealed to us. God's Word is sufficient for every good work. That's what we're told in Timothy. It is sufficient unto every single good work. So anything that I can do to please God, or any good work, which includes being a father, husband, uh, working under your employer in your vocation and serving others through your job, any of those things are described as good works throughout the Bible. Any good work. In fact, I think in the Protestant tutor that I have here, in one of their little, what would be the equivalent to a catechism or, you know, uh, you know, something like that. They're in their little confessions they have for the kid. And the Protestant tutor, they say something like, everything that there is to know, and this was very common among the Reformers and the Protestants, so it's, it may sound familiar to some of your listeners, but it's, it's essentially that any, any aspect of salvation can be found in Scripture alone. So, you know, not only is salvation found there in God's Word and revealed to us there in God's Word, but so is every good work. So is every aspect of worshiping God in accordance to what he has commanded, as well as sanctification itself. You know, and, and that's the crazy thing is, no, I don't see any reason for direct revelation. I think all re- revelation is personal to God's people. So the way that it's been, it's been phrased throughout history is divine. You know, this, this is, by the way, just so you know, I, I just, I have to point this out. Uh-huh. If you believe in divine direct revelation outside of God's Word. First of all, you would have to be breaking uh, one of the things that Paul said about having no personal, you know, having no personal interpretation that doesn't, that isn't meant for the body of Christ, okay? So when you read God's Word, if you read it like a book, like you would read any other book, like you pick up a comic book, or you pick up the history book, or even if you pick up Harry Potter, do you go through, do you just jump to the middle of it and pick out a sentence and go, ah, what a great story? Oh, you open it up from the first page and you follow the dialogue that's stretched all throughout the story. Now, we would call this the whole counsel of God, right? So to understand the New Testament, you know, we have to have followed along in the Old Testament. In order to interpret and be able to understand in the, the Old Testament, we have to have read the New Testament. We have to read God's Word in entirety. Or, if we haven't done that, we need to hear preachers, faithful preachers and teachers, who have studied to show themselves approved, and anyone who will tell you that they don't exist today is wrong. God has preserved a remnant. And there's not just one or two of them in the back hills of such and such place. All right. And if they're telling you that, Put down the Kool-Aid, take off the robes, and run. <laughs> because they're, they're trying to pull 
template of what Jason God is capable of doing. And he's not capable of preserving a remnant that's visible, that's declaring the word of God publicly. They think that, no, he wants you in secret. He wants you in hiding. He wants you isolated to where what? He could preserve you and 10 others? See, what God declares to me in his word is that all the way up until Christ comes, they are going to be proclaiming the gospel to the world. That they will not be, they will not be put down or put out. The light will continue to go on. The voice will continue to be heard. And see, even though there are some things that either we are struggling with as far as false doctrine, and by the way, we all are dealing with it, but we have to understand that, that, the, that the preachers and teachers that God has put out there are not our high priests or anything like that. But they're also not, they're not perfected men or anything like that. So we, when Paul the Apostle came into town in Berea and preached the gospel, the Bereans went to the scriptures to verify what he was saying was true. Right. That should be our approach when we hear a preacher or teacher. And we should first and foremost be willing to submit ourselves to the authority of scripture. So if there's something being taught that we don't like, our first response should be to go to God in prayer and ask God the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin that we may not be aware of and disagreeing with his word. The second approach should be to go into Scripture and study what has been taught and verify if what is being said lines up with the whole counsel of God, the entirety of God's word. And that's why we read it, the Bible, like a book. That's why God has written it down in such a way that even a child can understand it. You read the next sentence. That's how it's not to be pulled and picked apart like a fortune cookie. It's to be read and understood in context like any other book. And by the way, that is how Christianity has been preserved for thousands of years, through faithful preaching and teaching and by studying and knowing and reading God's Word. And in the modern day we live in, it's really no different. It's just at a, diff it's at a different level, like throughout history, you know, the Reformation, for example, God's word was being heard, God's word was being received, God's word was, was being read and, and proclaimed all throughout the land, all from nation to nation, and this is evidence of God giving grace to man by being gracious to them and opening their eyes and ears to receive the gospel. But we've also seen in history where that hasn't been the case, where men have not gone to Scripture, they've held to their traditions and they've held to their ideas and concepts of God, and they've been totally left in their delusion and in their fables and in their, you know, their, and so we, we, there's an ebb and flow all throughout history, just like there was with Israel, right? There's been an ebb and flow, just like in the Old Testament till now, of where people have fallen away from God, and he is judging them in that process, or he's delivered them in his gospel and his word and his and Christ is being proclaimed and declared and received. I mean, we might call this revival or something like that, but I, I like Reformation. And we have seen that happen. And, and here's the thing. We can trust that God is going to do as he pleases. So if God sees fit for, you know, the time where he'll judge man, that he'll raise up false teachers and false preachers that many people want to hear, by the way, if you can't see that that's exactly what's going on today, you, 
well, you probably wouldn't be listening to Michael's show, to be honest with you, but for those of you, you know, you've got to see that God is judging mankind right now. He, his judgment is upon the earth, and that he is allowing the Joel Osteens and the Rick Warrens and the, you know, all of these different uh, professing Christians, even the false religions are escalating, you know, that they are being raised up because God is judging man. And how is he doing it? He's not opening their eyes. He's not opening their ears. He's just letting them follow their own free will. He's just letting them do as they want. And slowly but surely, their hearts are being hardened. And what we as Christians ought to be praying for is the grace and mercy of God. Of course, what did Jesus tell us to pray God's will? We should be praying the will of the Father be done, as we know it is in heaven and on earth. So we're praying that his will be done, that he preserve his people, that he have mercy, and that he open the eyes, right? We should be mediating for God's people in all this, praying for, the, for people who are being martyred for bearing the name of Christ, for preaching the gospel. You know, uh, we should be praying against the Antichrist of Rome. We should be praying against the false teachings of professing Christian sects that go by, you know, different, they claim to be a part of the, you know, Christian church, and they aren't. We should be praying that they be pulled down and exposed, and that the true gospel be received. And we don't do this by weapon. We don't do this by force. We don't do this by, you know, politics or economics. We simply do this by the meager, lowly, seemingly foolish tactic of simply preaching the word and living as though it were true. All right. Well, I, have, I, have, I, I want to make a comment. I want to make a comment about what you said because it's just, uh, <clears throat> not to be, I just, just asked the question. So you said, uh, we should pray for God's will. Uh, now when I hear that, and I know you're not saying that, but when I hear that, I hear uh, that it's, it's almost as like if we pray for God's will that we're kind of like trying to conjure, you know, conjure up or trying to get him to do his will when he's ever going to do his will. So it shouldn't be, is it more that we should praise God that he is doing his will? Isn't that really what we should be doing? Instead of, you know, asking God to do his will, or he's going to do his will regardless if we accept it or not, right? I mean, he's God. Absolutely true. But let, let's, pull, let's, let's pull up the text here. Let's see, what, uh, let's see what Jesus said about this. And by the way, I'm gonna, I want to answer it more appropriately, uh, or not appropriately, uh, more specifically here in a second. But let's, let's pull up what Jesus said. Yeah, that's um, one thing. I'm thinking yeah. up uh, the Lord's Prayer there, and he says, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, our okay. Father art in heaven, how will be thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy king, thy king will be done on earth as in heaven. It's not asking him, it's just recognizing that his will will be done on earth and in heaven. And we're praising him that, and we're recognizing that he's doing that. Uh, in other words, we're saying, you know, yep, you're God, you are a ruler, you are a creator, you are going to do what you're going to do, and hallelujah for that. Not, please, will you do your will, <laughs> kind of thing, you know what I mean? And tell me if I'm wrong, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, you know, but that's, that's how I see it. I see it as like, look, you're God. You know? I, don't think, I, I don't see it as an either or, 
okay. you know, pray this way or that way. I think your I think your points are right on. I I just don't think it's an either or. In other words, we can pray God's will be done. We know it will be, but we have to be reminded of what prayer is. Is prayer trying to convince God of something? Is prayer trying to turn God's change God's mind or turn His? You know, no. Prayer is ultimately to teach us something. And so there's a reason why Jesus says, this is, this is what I want you to pray. Okay? I mean, not like the Pharisees who pray like this. Now, that's the context, that's the context of Matthew 6. But he says, instead, I want you to pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, there's your praise right there. Praise God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah. I say on. I said on is supposed to be the end of my apology. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. That's all right. That's, I, I would say, that, you know, the, the rest goes on to say, you know, one could say, well, you know, if we're God's creation and he's going to take care of us, why would we need to pray this? Is he, I mean, how many of us eat meals all day long, you know, and eat whenever we want and not realize that this is God providing for us? I think we, you know. I think it's uh, definitely for me at times I struggle with it, but I recognize what you're saying it's true. I definitely need to be more appreciative of what God has given me. And, oh, everything. Uh, the, the very breath you just took, God gave it to you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's making me think, too, because you brought up something even earlier. You said something about, you know, what God actually did for us was that he gave us his only begotten son. And I was thinking about that when you're saying that. It's, you know, if we really are really believers, really believe, shouldn't that be sufficient in itself, regardless of what happens to us? Boom. That's what you know what I mean? In other words, if we end up in the streets, a poor pauper, at the, you know, in a prison or whatever may happen, uh, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, it does, but it doesn't, you know what I mean? Because the big picture is is that what God really has given us, it's uh, our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, and eternal life. And with Him, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to uh, ask God to help us in our lives, and, and not only to thank Him for what we have, but also to ask Him. But, if we don't get what we want on this earth, oh well, <laughs> that's how I'm saying it. You know what I mean? Yep. I, maybe I'm. I'm God. No. I don't think I'm wrong. I mean, that's how it is. I mean, that's uh, and and be satisfied with that. That's one of the big lessons I'm learning right now in my life. Is because uh, you know, as, when I was a man of the world, you know, I wanted the things of the world, and now that I am, um, you know, I have surrendered. I've surrendered. Um, you know, it's like, well, okay, so I, you know, I'm, maybe I'll never ever wear a brand new shirt again. And I, I had the same pair of tennis shoes for two, three years now, and uh, uh, and I'm stuck in the situation that I am, and all the things. But you know what? I got you, God. You know what I mean? I, I got you on the begotten son. What? What else? What does really matter? What else does a sinner, Michael? What else does a sinner need? Uh, God, you have revealed your Son to me. You have forgiven me my transgressions, all of them. See, to a sinner, that's it. 
that clinging to the robe of Christ, that having Christ make me see again, that the, the fact that Christ is forgiving me my sins or taking off that burden, that's what matters to a sinner. But who that doesn't matter to is the religious. Now, I'm not saying religious in this modern kind of, everyone has twisted this word all upside down and all around. I'm talking about the self-righteous, the people who think that they don't need to repent anymore. I mean, what a scary thought. People are like, you know, I, I don't have to repent. I mean, God knows my heart. I mean, what a dangerous place to be. What a, what a I mean, without repentance, how could we know forgiveness? You know, I, I love how Spurgeon said it. You know, he had a friend who, who passed away in his lifetime when he was aging. He said he couldn't believe this man's understanding of repentance. He, he described it having his best friend, and, and uh, somebody asked him, said, hey, you know, what, what is it that you're going to miss about being here, on, you know, in earth, being here, and knowing that you're going to die here of old age? And he said, I'm going to miss my best friend. You know, he's been with me ever since. And he's been with me every day, sometimes multiple times, and he's always brought comfort with him. This friend has been a great, great encouragement to me throughout my whole life. And if there's one thing that I'm going to miss, once I die in this life and go to heaven and to be with Christ, there is one thing I might miss, and that's this this friend, this friend I've been with a long, long time. And who is that friend? He was asked, he said, repentance. You know, with repentance, we have forgiveness. It reveals God's strength and his might and his victory over sin. And that here this weak vessel says, I've sinned again. I can, I, I, I'm a sinner. I, I sin because I'm a sinner. And but by God's grace, he forgives that because he has justly, lawfully paid that price. Right. And if we confess with our mouth, he's faithful and just. Let's not overlook that word. Oh, he's faithful. Oh, he's loving. Oh, he's merciful. Oh, yes. But he is also just and holy and righteous. And his forgiveness over you is not just pity. It's not just, okay, all right. It is just for him to forgive you. It's lawful. It's complete and full. And this is why when people, you know, I mean, you're talking about, Paul was told, he said, I've got this pain in my side, and I, 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 I put out my petition before God three times. I, I mean, I wanted him to remove the pain. You know, this ailment, this, whatever this physical ailment was. And what, what, what did God finally reply with? My grace is sufficient for you. Whatever we suffer in this life, Romans 8, whatever we suffer in this life, what does it compare? Our life is but a vapor. Everything here will pass away like grass and like flowers, and it'll just wither away. But our soul, having been having Christ revealed to us, will live in the presence and in the glory of God for all of eternity. That matters to a sinner. They cannot hold on to this life very long in the sense that they're focused on wealth and riches and fame and right. Well, Jesus wasn't being allegorical when he said that it would be harder for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven than a camel to the eye of a needle. He was telling you that typically the nature of man is that he will lust. 
after money and wealth or, you know, through greed and envy. Because what does money give you? Everything you want. I mean, look at the wealthiest people in the world. I mean, they're almost bored with getting everything they want all the time. And there's no joy in it. It's just temporary. In fact, when you hear the story of Lazarus, who's the other guy in the story? Remember, you know, Lazarus and the rich man, right? You don't even know his name. And here he was on this life and this earth, rich and wealthy, and he walked past Lazarus, and he didn't even give him scraps. I mean, he just, he was, you know, the, uh, you know, the big dog, the big cheese, and he made all the money. He had a big house, and nice cars, and probably had lots of wives, or whatever they did back in those days. But you don't even know his name. But you know Lazarus, the poor man, who had a disease, he was all funky looking, he had no money, he could barely eat anything, and he sat outside the rich man's house just looking for anything. I probably just, you know, it's like coming out of the steakhouse. You know, the rich man comes out of the steakhouse and he's walking back to his house. I mean, Lazarus probably wouldn't have minded just a few crumbs or little barbecue sauce to drip off his robes. I mean, he could, he was hungry and poor. Okay, we probably didn't need all that little extra biblical commentary, but you get my point. <laughs> He, sure. he was poor. Nobody knew who he was in this world. I mean, the rich man didn't even pay attention to him. But what happens in the story? What does Jesus tell us about this historical event between Lazarus and the rich The rich man cried out, have mercy upon me, right? Give me just a drip of water in my suffering. So he knew Lazarus now. And see, there's no gloating, no no, no showboating, no, you know, no pride whatsoever. And Lazarus, in fact, the story goes on, might as well complete it. Uh, he said, go tell all my family. And what did Lazarus say? Can't be done, right? I mean, we're told in the New Testament that once a man dies, he's to be judged. Okay, there's no going back. Yeah, I mean, this, this refutes Mormonism, this refutes... Uh, you know, even purgatory and Roman Catholicism, and this, this refutes, you know, uh, Buddhism and other sorts of uh, the, the religions that teach regeneration or something like that, you know. Uh, it goes, the, God's Word just literally chips away at all those false religions right there. You know, you die, that's it. And Lazarus tells us this. So they, rich man, can't be done. They have, you now here's what it says, they have the law and the prophets. They will have to hear it from them, right? Because that's what God has ordained. We have the preaching and teaching of his word, the declaring of the gospel, and that is sufficient. God, and people, you know, they doubt. I mean, they have such a low view of God's sovereignty. They have such a low view of God and his complete control as creator. They have such a low view that they actually will make arguments like, well, what about the small tribe in Africa who's never heard? And I would say, how in the world would you possibly know that? A. Second of all, how can you know uh, the heart and mind of any creature? It doesn't matter. I mean, you, my point is, is come on over to America, and are you hearing the gospel preached? Okay. That tribe in Africa might be better off. And now, that's somewhat sarcastic and, 
you know, I don't mean that quite literally, but hopefully the, my analogy here, my, my, my sarcasm is making the point that with the amount of false doctrine being taught here, you know, who, who is to say that this is, that this is, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. I just lost my train of thought. Is this making sense though? In other words, the false doctrine is worse because now you have, now you have to deal with the misperception. And, and so that this is why I'm telling people when we try and go at it with our logic, when we try and make a logical argument to chip away at God's sovereignty about how things that he's revealed in his word are going to work, and because we doubt that, we, we ask these questions that logically kind of, you know, they might make sense to us, but according to Scripture, it's like, wait a second, you can't know men's hearts. You can literally be preaching the gospel to the same person for 50 years, and they may not be saved. Yeah. Because we aren't the judge of that, you know? And then you do it the other way around. You know, the Bible tells us that it's through the preaching and teaching of God's Word and through the proclamation of the gospel that men are drawn to Him. So guess what? I have no doubt in my mind that God will bring every single person He wants to the gospel. Because I cannot come lest the Father draw me. And I do not doubt God's ability to bring even the remotest tribesmen in the remotest part of the world who doesn't even speak a modern-day language. God, by his, uh, by his decree, by his will, by his good pleasure and mercy, he could bring even that man all the way into learning a new language, to hearing the gospel preached in a language he can understand and coming to Christ just as God the Holy Spirit is commanded to do, and as God has promised to do through his word. See, I don't doubt God's ability to do all that. Now let's make it a more practical application. Family member who's steeped in the worst kind of sin or addiction or depression or struggle, he can reach even them. The person in the deepest, steepest cult that you could possibly find, God can reach even them. I have no doubt. But it's not going to come through my strategy or through my, you know, sneaking the gospel in, or, you know, going Jack Bauer for Jesus, or becoming a spy, you know, to kind of drop in, you know. No, I'm just simply going to walk in accordance, uh, or actually, let's put it the way Luke put it, you know, uh, keep in uh, bearing fruit and keeping with repentance throughout my life, and simply sharing the gospel appropriately as it's in season, out of season, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, to share with people what I've been taught. In other words, when it's profitable and when it's not. In other words, I'm, you know, I, I was in a post office a couple of months ago, and it, somehow the conversation just ended up. You know, it's like one of those things where you're just talking about, you know, dropping something off, and somebody says something about, you know, this, and next thing you know we're talking about. There's a perfect opportunity to drop the gospel in. You know, somebody mentioned something about God, and somebody else agreed, and then somebody else talked about Jesus, and then boom, it's like God set it up for just, just to lay out the gospel here. And nobody, you know, it's not forced. And everyone, in other words, you know, everyone knows that if there's a Christian in the room, the gospel is probably going to be presented. That Christ bled and died for the forgiveness of sins, repent, believe, be saved. You know, I mean, I, I put it all in a nutshell there, but my point is, is, Read the Bible because we listen to faithful preaching and teaching, because we see through prayer, you know, 
and through the, the stuff in our lives that God's using to teach and chasten and correct, you know, us, we are assured and we're, we're, he's being revealed to us and throughout scripture and with the help of the church and so on and so forth. And this, this is a very, let me just put it this way. Christianity is very mundane and very consistent, not boring, you know, but just very ordinary, just every day in and out. I need to repent daily. That was what I was going to read from the rest of, you know, the Lord's prayer there is essentially we have this. Go ahead. What you want to. Oh, well, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, this this entire prayer is a dependence upon God. Like you said, Michael, it's praising God. It's praying that it will be done as we know it will be. That's what Jesus even says, be done in earth as it is in heaven. I mean, it's going to be done, but we're, we're glorifying that, but we're also saying that to remind us. Right. You know, to remind us that he's in control, that we need to repent daily and be forgiven and forgive others, that we need to stay away from temptation and ask God to deliver us from that. Because, by the way, he's in control. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Um, and, I, you know, that, I mean, this is Christ's command. And this keeps our eyes focused. Now, some people will make a ritual out of this. And they'll literally take these exact words and recite them over and over again. And I think they'd be missing the point. Is look at what Jesus is focusing our eyes on in prayer. What is he telling us to do with this prayer? To literally repeat the exact words? Well, I don't necessarily see anything wrong with that per se, but if that if it's just becoming a repetitious prayer, I think we've negated some other things that he has said about repeating prayers. You know, it's it's understanding the point behind the prayer. And what is it setting our eyes upon? God and his sovereignty, his ability to forgive us, deliver us, provide for us. And if, if that is the key focus, we ought to be thankful for the food that he gives us, for the clothes that we wear, for the housing we're sheltered in. And even when we don't have those things, be reminded that through the forgiveness of our sins, through the revealing of Christ, the Son, to us, to sinners who don't deserve to even utter the majestic, beautiful, glorious name of Christ, we get to not only pray to Him, to know Him, but to share Him with others. What a privilege. What an absolute privilege to do that. And whatever we suffer in this life, whether we deal with disease, whether we just deal with, you know, lack of money, you know, just all the struggles you can imagine. But we have Christ to cling on to, and then we have Christ to glorify and proclaim, not because of our struggles or our strife, but because of his glorious name and for what he has done for his people. I mean, that keeping our eyes centered on him, it's like it doesn't matter what's going on around you to a sense. You know, it isn't to say that we shouldn't mourn with those who are suffering, that we, you know what I'm saying, that we shouldn't rejoice and delight and laugh with those who are, you know, things are good. There's an appropriation for these things. But anyway, uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts, Michael? Amen. That's my thoughts. Amen. So, um, 
Yeah, it's something that, like you said, constant repent, remind yourself of what you're saying. Uh, <clears throat> learning to put, him, put God first, put the Lord and Savior first, uh, to put uh, the truth first above ourselves. And to, um, when it comes to the Lord's prayers, to really, con- you know, to truly contemplate it and to um, truly understand what it means in its entirety. It's a very powerful prayer, and it's much deeper than just a faint repetition prayer that somehow <clears throat> will uh, earn us great, you know, brownie points. You know what I mean? It's it's a very powerful prayer because it's it's the absolute truth. It's amazing how short and straight the point it is, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, Jesus, Jesus had a great way of doing that. <laughs> As he should, you know. But, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, totally agree with you. I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, well, I was thinking, Dylan, you know, you sent me that email. Maybe we ought to read it. Okay. And because it kind of goes along with what you're saying. Um, and, you know, I, 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 you know, I imagine some people will say, well, gee, why are you reading this email on your show? <laughs> because it kind of, it kind of uh, um, puts me in a spot, too, in a little bit. Uh, but um, I think it is ultimately what, uh, um, this is, who is this? This Luther? Um, am I correct about that? Yes, it's Luther. You there still? Hello. Did I lose you? I did. All right. No, 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 no. I'm here. I was muted out. Sorry. I was hitting the break. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Okay. I'm still uh, here. If you are, if you are, take a break, and I'll read this email that you sent me. And yes, yeah, it's Martin Luther. And uh, take your, your break. Um, yeah, it says here. This is what Ryan sent me um, today. Uh, yesterday, actually. Um, and it just looks like you can find this uh, www. Uh, Covenators. Uh, dot org Luther slash Luther slash bondage slash bow TOC dot HTM. Anyways, this is now my good uh Erasmus. I entreat you for Christ's sake to keep your uh promise at last. You promise that you would yield to him who taught better than yourselves. Lay aside respect of persons. I acknowledge that you are a great man adorned with many of God's noblest gifts, wit, learning, and an almost miraculous elegance, uh, to say nothing of the rest. Whereas I have, and I am nothing, Save that I would glory in the glory in being a Christian. Moreover, I give you hearty praise and commendation on this further account. 
that you alone, in contrast with all others, have attacked the real thing that is the essential issue. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles, rather than issues in respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood. Though without success, you and you alone have seen the hinge on which all turns and aimed for the vital spot. For that I heartily thank you. For, excuse me, it is more gratifying to me to deal with this issue insofar as time and leisure permits me to do so. If those who have attacked me in the past um, have, have, excuse me, have passed, am I reading this right? Had done as you have done, and if those who now boast of new spirits and revelations would do the same also, we should have less, less sedition and sex and more peace and concord. But thus it is that God, through Satan, has punished our unthankfulness. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I, when I read that, I have many, uh, maybe it's, I shouldn't say it's, it's about me at all, really. In the <laughs> uh, but it's just what it is, you know, it talks about here, you have wearied me with those extraneous issues about, excuse me, you have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles, rather, and issues in respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood, though without success. You and you alone have seen the hinge on which turns and aimed for the vital spot. Um, now, what what was Martin Luther referring to there? Uh, you know, that's what I was going to ask you. What do you what do you get out of that? Because um, well, that quote comes from his book called "The Bondage of the Will," mm-hmm. and what was being argued and debated was whether or not, you know, God had sovereign choice over the salvation of men, or whether men had the sovereign choice of salvation with God. And what was being taught in, in the part, as part of the Counter-Reformation was something called, uh, mo, how do I, what's the word? I always get this mixed up. Uh, Molinism, I think it's how you say it, Molinism. It's named after the Jesuit priest um, Molin, I think. Uh, is it Molinism or, or, or modalism? No, modalism is in reference to, my wife asked me the same question today. Modalism is in reference, and here's an easy way to remember it, is in reference to the Trinity. Okay, now modalism is easy to remember like this, that you believe God to be one person operating in three different modes, as the Father, as the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, that was debated even as early as the 3rd and 4th century, 
and was simply declared as heretical um, by the church because it does not teach the doctrines of what Scripture reveals, which is that God is one being in the three persons, in the triune uh, nature of, you know, in other words, some people say, well, that's three different gods. And that, that, and that has been debated since, like I said, the third and fourth century. Okay. Uh, but not to sidetrack, not to sidetrack on this point, the, 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 just to clarify this thought, that God is three persons, but he's one being. And, and people say, I just don't get that. Well, that, that's expressly kind of laid out for us in Scripture, that this, this, this part of God's nature is not fully revealed, but it is ascribed to us in Scripture, and instead of trying to make it fit our understanding, we should just accept what the text says and go by that. Now, going back to modal, or, uh, okay, now i got the words mixed up again. You have modalism, which is a different doctrine altogether, and then you have Help me with the word um, monolism. 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 Thank you. Yes. Yes. Something like uh, yes. I'm going to have to look at the article now. But yes, going off of that word, that is teaching the doctrines of essentially free will. Now that's where that that's where that phrase pops up on the scene. Okay. Now you had Arminian uh, Arminianists who you know that's obviously Arminianism. And then you have Pelagia or uh, Pelagian, I forget his name, but again, his name is tied to Pelagianism. Um, I'm not going to get into all those different things. But during the Counter-Reformation, you have a rebirth of these old um, doctrines that were refuted by the Church, that were stated to be in error to what Scripture says regarding man's cooperation or man's involvement in the salvation, whether it be through good works, whether it be through, you know, um, you know, after salvation, not necessarily needing to do anything. Um, and you have forms of that today in hyper-Calvinism. You have forms of that today predominantly in the evangelical, you know, American evangelical arrangement with free will, things like that. So you have all these old, old concepts that, that you would not think are old, you would think are brand new, but really they're just revived, okay? And my point in saying this is that Martin Luther, during his time, as the Counter-Reformation is kicking off, has this old doctrine kind of pop up again. And uh, the guy didn't claim necessarily to be, you know, an Arminian, in, uh, Arminian or a follower of Pelagia. Because why? Because they were already argued to be erroneous by the, by the Church, by Protestants and Reformers. So he's not going to come out and state the obvious. He's going to just kind of adapt. You know, this is this is the nature, you know, of what we've learned throughout history in dealing with the Jesuits and things like that. So he comes out with, this is where the phrase pops up, free will. That man, God, has shown his love for us, and then he's given us free will. <laughs> you know, and so we're going to use this free will to choose God. Now, here's the problem with that. The Bible says that we're dead in our sin. Now, how does a dead man choose anything? Okay, how did Lazarus, being dead, choose Christ? No, he didn't. Christ called his name, and he responded by the power of God. Okay? Now, we have another issue here, in that um, the Bible says that there's no good in us. There's no, there's no righteousness, there's, there's no goodness in us, that it's only his goodness. So that when we, as Christians, as, you know, in believing 
uh, and repentance and believing in the forgiveness of our sins, that God is indwelling his people, that, um, you know, the temple is not made with man's hands, but it's, in fact, dwelling in his people now. And the, and the point of that is to say that when we do good, it's actually God, the Holy Spirit, doing his work in and through us as empty vessels. And so the point is, this whole thing, the free will, it was actually introduced by the Roman Catholic Church in opposition to the historic Christian faith. And it was actually an old argument, kind of just rebranded, kind of slightly modified and reintroduced to counter the very gospel that was being taught and read and shared you know, all across Europe and spreading like wildfire through the reformers and through the printing of the Bible in their language and, and through these, um, you know, these little tracts that they would hand out to people that were, you know, easy to understand and easy to read and where people were, again, being drawn by the Holy Spirit to truth. And so this opposition, this, this, this uh, uh, let's say, this tactic, uh, this strategy, was to counter that and say, well, actually, no, the Bible teaches free will. And that's the root of it. And that's what Martin Luther is addressing in this, in this, even in his book um, about, you know, the bondage of the will, is that, no, 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 the, the issue in which all that the Reformation hinges on, the issue that matters, is not all these other trifles, but the very aspect and nature of what the gospel is. Even Martin Luther himself is praising Erasmus, if you can believe it or not. Just go look up the history of Erasmus. He's actually praising Erasmus for wanting to debate it, for wanting to talk about it, for wanting to, you know, basically argue the point that he, that is what was what mattered. And so what I would challenge Christians with today in this is there is a lot to be understood about historic Christianity, a lot. And there's many things to learn and to pay attention to. Um, absolutely. But let's not take our eyes off of what it really hinges upon. And that is what is the gospel. Is it man choosing? Is it God showing his grace in showing himself to be sovereign. I mean, what is the very essence here? Who is man and who is God in this? You know, this whole argument, this whole debate. And, you know, you'll have one side telling you, you know, one thing that doesn't line up with Scripture, and then you'll have the other side telling you what Scripture says and defending it. And they are probably not going to be the popular group. Um, It isn't to say that they haven't been throughout history. They certainly have, but but not predominantly. In fact, most of Christianity has suffered. Most of Christianity has paid a price, just as Christ said. So, and even in times of prosperity for true Christianity, it was simply God delivering his people, as he did in the Old Testament, for Israel. So we, we, we don't ever want to get too bloated or, you know, um, or get a persecution complex where we think that, you know, the smaller the group um, the more isolated or the more people disagree with us, the more right we are. We don't want to develop that complex either. And why not? People say, well, why not? Well, real simple, human nature. We will always try and derive some form of pride out of whatever it is that we're dealing with. 
You know, we can pretend to be really super humble and pious, and yet we're falling into our own pride. Or we can pretend to be, you know, super prosperous, and, you know, the blessing of God is upon me, you know, because I'm doing so well. And that'd be just as much a trap and a snare to us. So keeping the lens, or not the lens, but keeping the, yeah, why not? Keeping the lens focused on the gospel and being able to discuss the other things, being able to say, hey, you know, this is what Scripture says regarding this. You know, th- this is what Scripture has revealed about, you know, who Antichrist is or, um, you know, uh, things like speaking in tongues and the direct revelation. You know, and I, I would challenge people to think, you know, who agree with, you know, who think that, you know, God speaks so it's outside of his word, that when we simply want to hear the voice of God, we just open up our Bible and begin to read it. You know, if they disagree with that and they think that there's some other form of revelation that God's giving to us, I would challenge them to this. So did Joseph Smith. So does the Pope. Okay? I mean, how many people do we need to... I mean, so did Ellen White. Okay? All... What you will find a common thread is that many Bible twisters, you know, whether they be of today or of history... They all claim to be hearing from God the Holy Spirit or God himself, whatever they claim, outside of Scripture. They're not pointing to God's Word like the prophets in the Old Testament did. They're not simply declaring what God says and being humble about it, as were the prophets in the Old Testament. You know? They're telling you that God told them something that's outside of his Word. Oh, yeah, they'll bring in a little Scripture and kind of twist it around to make you think you know, that you're hearing, but you being a good Brian, right, just like the Brians, I should say, being like the Brians, you go and study Scripture and say, hey, wait a second. He is taking that out of context and making that fit his little thing that he got to share. And he's taking my eyes off of Christ, taking it off of my sin and the forgiveness of my sins, and he's pointing me to some something that sounds good and maybe feels good, but is really deceptive, you know, and casting doubt upon what Scripture says and, and casting doubt on God's ability to speak clearly and surely through His Word. You know, those types of things. We, those are things we ought to consider when we hear somebody say, I have, God told me, you know. Again, is there something wrong with that particular phrase? Well, I would kind of not recommend using it because it gives people a wrong impression, but even if some God told me to tell you what it says right here in Ephesians 1, you know, then you're probably, you know, it's probably a little safer there. But just make sure you go and read Romans 1 and make sure that's what it says, you know. But again, and then somebody says, you know, hey, God told me to tell you, and then they just come up with something on their own. Well, we got a problem here. Because now I have to take what they said, and think about how simple this is, okay? Now, according to God's Word, if they're speaking on behalf of God's Word, okay, if they're speaking on behalf of God the Holy Spirit, what they're saying should apply to the entire church. So here's what I need to do, okay? And I've done this before. I've had people tell me that God's telling them something, so here's what I do. And sometimes it's humorous. Don't be, don't be overly obnoxious with it. But if you do it right, it can be kind of funny and make the point without getting everyone riled up. But what I've literally done is I've pulled out my Bible, clicked on my pen, and acted like I'm about to write what they're going to say. 
and say, well, if you're hearing from God, the whole, if you're, God is speaking to you right now, I better, I better attitude. I, I'm just going to turn one page past Revelation, that one little blank page there at the very end of your Bible. Just go ahead and start writing whatever God is revealing to this person. Because they're claiming to be a prophet. They're claiming to be an apostle. They're, they're claiming the authority of being able to hear from God outside of his written word. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And hopefully the person might say, oh, you know, that's a little, you know, ridiculous. But it'll make the point that whatever they're about to say should apply to everyone in the church. And not just today, okay, ponder this, not just today, but it should, to, it should also apply to the church historically. Because God's people live, lived. And so I can't ever, see what I'm saying with this? The modern-day sense of Christianity has gotten so far off track that it literally thinks it's the only people that's ever existed on the face of the earth and that they're the only people God is interested in. And they don't realize the logic in that is that God would have to literally be rebuking a people that he calls his own for 2,000 years in order to honor the wishes of some people who don't even know the Bible I mean, literally, the Bible is like a fortune cookie to them. They, they know, you know, what Jeremiah 29, 11 says, you know, but they don't know, they know what John 3, 16 says, but they don't know what John 3, 17 and 18 say. You know, and, and you're going to tell the historic body of Christ who not only have been persecuted under some of the most horrific things that you couldn't stomach to hear. Yep. For example, read the Apostles Book of Martyrs. They debated for years at various councils and, you know, debates and, you know, uh, you know, uh, councils where they, the church would debate very important doctrine and establish it, you know, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about against empires, against bigger churches like the Roman Catholic Church, so on and so forth. I mean, all throughout history, these men who not only read the biblical languages, had access to the, the, the actual manuscripts, you know, throughout all of history, you know, um, that they don't know as much as people who are consumed with entertainment and, you know, fast food. <laughs> I mean, we go to church maybe once a, you know, once a Sunday and get 50 music, or sorry, 50 minutes in a dark room of mystical music and about 10 minutes of one element of a passage in the Bible. In other words, they're not even reading the word. They're just a pastor getting up talking about 10, 20 minutes of something he thinks the Bible says. Right. You're telling me that we're going to go up against them? Come on. And I'm just putting that out there as a challenge for anyone who, you know, might, might listen to this and, you know, question whether or not historic Christianity has any validity. I, I would challenge, I would say that they rebuke us. They do. They rebuke where our focus is today and what we're consumed with and what we're pretending God is saying to us when if we just opened up our Bible and read what it says, we would know surely and without a doubt. And uh, anyway, I guess that was a long answer to your question. I don't know. Somewhere in there. No, I think it was. Okay, well, I understand, so <laughs> I didn't know fully <laughs> what the context of that was, and of course, you know, after I read it, I, you know, again, I'm like, out loud, I'm like, this can't really be about 
my show or me or any book in particular. This is about uh, well, it somebody in particular. Obviously, it was about uh, between uh, well, this Luther's Lutherans, uh, which is described, um, uh, <clears throat> which is interesting too. You talk about uh, free will and all that, and um, how basically. It's pervasive throughout society. You know, the church and outside of the church, everything's about free will, free will. And that, um, and there's some kind of choice. And <laughs> it's far, so it's, we can somehow make God's decisions. You know what I mean? So, well, it's interesting. Oh, yeah. They'll, what, they'll tell you to, what they'll tell you to do is pray this little prayer. And they'll they'll anoint you saved or something like that. You know they'll just it, you know you might as well say something like three hail marys. You know and you're boom you're in. Oh and by the way you better stay good otherwise you might lose it. See what comes along with free will? Well the idea that you might lose that you might that you might fall away from God and choose something else one day. So free will doesn't really offer you assurance. And it doesn't really paint the gospel as it's presented in Scripture because the gospel in Scripture points to the sovereignty of God, not the free will of man. You know, so in other words, it, it, it points to God's freedom in choosing over his creation, who he will have and who he will not. And people say, well, that's not fair of God. That's, you know, what did God want us to all be robots? You know, well, just read Romans 9. What is the clay going to tell the potter? Why have you made me so? <laughs> who all man should question God you know but we just declare the mercy that he's revealed Christ to us and those who would say I don't want God I don't want Christ how is God being unfair with him you know what I'm saying so yeah Martin Luther said that what the Reformation hinged on was that doctrine and Martin Luther wasn't a Calvinist <laughs> you know I mean in a sense he was he held to the doctrines of grace I mean, and people will try and pit Lutherans against Calvinists and things like that, but really it comes down to the, the sovereignty of God in the gospel. And that is, you're right, Michael, that's not being preached today. What's being preached is you saving you, but just using the name of Jesus to do it. Works, works based. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I've had several discussions with folks who, who disagree with what you're saying. And they, they say, well, well, this is, I'm going to share something with you. You tell me if I'm right. And this is not, you know, I'm just sharing now my personal, how I see things, what has happened to me. And it's, it could be dangerous. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. But I was sharing, I shared a couple times with different folks that, you know, I don't feel like I had much of a choice. And, um, In accepting Christ, or rephrase, rephrase that, in Christ accepting me. When I look at my journey in life and me finally surrendering, and I mean that, surrendering. I really do believe that our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, was calling me. And I fought it to the nail, but I lost the battle, thankfully. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if it was truly based on my own free will, would I really uh, 
But I asked myself honestly, would I really would I really choose God? Would I really do that? And I have to be honest with folks, I don't think I would. So it's my only just based on my free will. Because my free will, my will is to sin. My will is to go out there and do that which is contrary to the will of God. <laughs> Does that make sense? Perhaps you're quoting what Scripture says about our will, yeah. That naturally the flesh is at enmity with God. It does not seek to do anything pleasing to God. In fact, anything in and of the flesh is not pleasing to God. So even what you're just saying there, you're quoting Scripture there. That, yeah. That's the nature of the flesh, is that it is literally naturally wants to go against I mean, that's, that's, and what is the spirit drawn to? The spirit that's been raised from death to life, the, the spirit that God has breathed his very life into. What is it? What is that spirit desire? Well, it's drawn to God. And Paul says that it's at war. They're, they're at war with one another. So you're, you know, uh, I, I would have to say exactly what you said in, you know, I've resisted God that I failed to win because he called me and he called me yeah. By my name, in a sense, I, I mean, I had, Calvinists call this irresistible grace, but not only Calvinists. You know, it's irresistible in that God, he's the one who's in control, not me. So when he said, I will have you, <laughs> I was had. You know, I mean, that's, you know, I think you're putting it well. In my experience, too, it has nothing to do with joining a church, and that's what, most of my life it was about, you know, with Mormons or AA, I, I consider a religion or whatever, maybe new age thing, but it's joining a group and it was, it was, it's really not about joining anything. It's just about surrendering. It's just about surrendering to God. Wherever he takes you, he takes you. <laughs> you know, it might be in a church. He's end up taking you back to where he might, in my situation, where what I'm doing, you know, I never in my lifetime ever thought that I'd be doing a rinky-dinky talk show in my mom's home <laughs> about this, these type of things, but that's what he obviously at this time wants me to do. Um, you know, if it was really my will or what I would want to do, I mean, um, you know, I would be doing something completely different. <laughs> based on my past and my behavior and who I am and you know uh, my sin nature well, I'm going to get I'm going to guess it would be something along the lines of whatever literally you could do to satisfy satisfy the immediate uh, you know impromptu um, impulsive uh, fleshly you know thing that you could buy whether it be money whether it be you know, women, women uh, money, or yeah, yeah you know, it'd be all the things of yeah. the desires of the flesh, right? I mean, that's, um, and you know, people say, well, don't you want to serve God? I said, well, you know, yeah, but no. Yep. Yeah, that's the truth. The truth is, is that part of me does and a part of me doesn't. That's the struggle. Well, if it wasn't the grace for God, it's not God's grace to keep drawing me when I'm resisting kind of constantly. <laughs> I mean, that's where it comes down to me. And when I finally realize there's nothing, I just like, 
you know, it's and you know, it's easy for me to say, okay, God, I give up, and it's take me where you want. Um, but but God, you know, I'm gonna kick and scream all the way. <laughs> That's who I am, and I, I wish I wasn't, but that's who I am. I mean, I uh, maybe I imagine as as like you talk about this continual repentance. Eventually, there'll be well, we pray and hope is there'll be more change, but it'll only be through God. If it's going to be me, if I think I can make it happen, it's does that make any sense? Totally. Totally, man. It totally it's an excellent breakdown because you're describing the very we are like children and we were once slaves, slaves to sin. I don't know how somebody can can get away from what scripture says there. A slave is a slave to sin in that regard. Then what happens? We are bought, paid for, adopted, etc. You know, all those things being pointed out there in scripture. And now we belong to him. Now we're focused on him. Now we're, our thoughts and our, our deeds and all those things are now set upon him. And he, like raising a child, he's going to teach you according to his time, according to his goodwill and pleasure. And the point of that is that you're always dependent upon him. Now, you may wish that he speeds you along in the sanctification process, that he make you, you know, as holy as Martin Luther or something like that, which... By the way, when you read Martin Luther, you'll find the guy had a bit of a potty mouth. You know what I mean? His, his sanctification process in that regard wasn't well drawn out. But God certainly used him. And so the issue here isn't who the man is, who we are as a person, but who God is and what he's doing in and, our, in and through our lives. And that is when, as you mature and as he brings you into maturity and his timing, there will, the desire will grow. And people get freaked out when, they, when you tell them, um, you know, listen, you can strive all you want, but you know, it'll only be temporary. And even if you fool yourself for many, many years, you know, as far as in the sight of God, it's really worth it because it's not his work, it's yours, you know. And it freaks them out when you say, hey, trust in God to do that work in you. Just continue to pray, continue to repent, continue to read your Bible, continue to seek out godly counsel and hear faithful preaching and teaching. And I'll say, but what about doing good? And they, they think that it's not possible for the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be to, to be uh, produced in the life of a Christian or something. And you have to call them out on that. You have to say, listen, God will do that. It is assured. James even says that I can show you my faith by my works, right? He's not saying go out and earn your salvation. He's saying that it inevitably comes as part of God doing the work in and through you. And for some people, he does it differently than he does it. And you want to know why? Because you just look at your family. Anyone who grew up in a family, who has a family or grew up in one, you know, the, the whole idea of having brothers and sisters who are of different ages, with different personalities, and things like that. Well, God, because he is such a, an awesome creator, and he's so, I mean, just look at all the different bugs and insects and animals and even our own human bodies and how complex and diverse they are. All of his creation shows this 
this, uh, this, his nature in that regard. How, how, what a masterful, a magnificent creator he is. And yet, what we're all gonna, we're all gonna be the exact same. We're all gonna be at the same level of maturity with the same personality. All no, no. See, God is able to work in His children according to His will. And some are gonna have personality. You know, Calvin was very scholarly. He was very, you know, deep theologically. Uh, Martin Luther was as well, but you know, he had a little bit more of a sarcastic, you know, kind of a satirical sense of humor, uh, you know, and a bit of a potty mouth, and he was very bold in his statements, and, you know, a totally different personality, and yet they were agreeing on what the gospel is, uh, who Antichrist is, you know, the difference of falsehood of the most popular, dominant, ruling religion of its time, you know what I mean? Like, they, I mean... And yet here, and, and then you can even bring in Zwingli, and you know, I mean, you can Knox was a very bold personality, but he wasn't. He didn't go to the extremes that Martin Luther did, um, you know, and, as far as his language and things like that. He was very bold. Very, I mean, he was. I mean, he was like a rock. You know what I mean? Totally different personalities, and yet God using them according to His pleasure and His will all throughout history. You know, Peter being one way, to John being another way. You know, Paul being, you know, <laughs> I mean, Paul was worse than, you know, the modern-day persecutors of Christianity. I mean, he, he makes some of these guys who are doing horrific things look like, you know, kids. I mean, he, he did some horrific things to Christians before Christ revealed himself to, uh, to Saul, who later became Paul the Apostle. You know, I mean, and Paul was a different personality and things like that. So we, we try and gauge our understanding of how God could possibly work through someone who isn't um, putting, I guess, all their effort into it. And we have to remind people that, oh, yeah, there's a responsibility there. You are responsible for what you do and what you choose. You know, you do have free will in the sense that you will constantly uh, be drawn away from God, and that will happen through that. So, you know, to say that, oh, you don't have to do anything, you just sit back, relax, you know, no, we certainly don't find that in Scripture at all. We preach what the text says, and there's going to be challenge, there's going to be confrontation with the flesh. You know, there's going to be reminders, hey, remember, you know, what Christ has done, remember who God is here, He's holy and righteous, and let's not forget, you know, what this leads to, when we forget these things, it leads to consequences none of us like, and, you know, in other words, God doesn't just give us permission to to sit back and relax, but, but neither does He tell us to strive in trying to earn our salvation or, or, you know, draw Him nearer according to our timing and what we would like to see Him do, um, and try, in a sense, trying to convince God or twist God into doing something, you know, He's He's created time itself, and he's created everything in time. And so his, his will and pleasure, or sorry, his will according to his pleasure is going to, is what's going to happen. So we can trust in that, but we also don't uh, abuse that. We don't, we don't abuse that, if that makes sense. So just I think it freaks people out when you say, you know, Oh, it's not about good works. You know, they think that you're you're, you're taking away sanctification. But I, I, 
I have to remind people, no, that work is done. Trust in it. Believe that it's possible for God to actually do what he says he's going to do in the life of a Christian, that he will bear fruit. And when there's no fruit, the Christian ought to be, the professing Christian ought to be very, very concerned, you know? But anyway, I could, just about any point you can bring up, Michael, I'll probably go on and on about it, but just just jump in. No, I was just going to, I was thinking a couple things. One thing I was thinking, if you're, I guess, quote, unquote, one of the elect, one of God's chosen, Will he let you uh, just uh, take it for granted? Just say, oh, I'm God's flex, so I'm just going to do what I want. Will he even let you do that? I mean, he might let you do it it for a season, but, I mean, if God is working in you, one of the things the Spirit of God does is give you a conscience. And that conscience then bothers you and you, you... you know, it's like me, like my lackadaisical effort reading the scriptures lately, it's been bugging me, yet I still resist it. But it bugs me all day long, but I I still don't do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not the way I should, you know what I mean? And I, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm just being honest about it, and I'm just like, you know, that must be how God works in one's life, and because you just you're miserable. You know, it lets you be miserable in your defiance, in your uh, apathy and laziness towards him. His word and what he you know what he wants for us, you know. And uh, I know, I, I it seems to me that I I mean maybe he can, maybe he will. I mean maybe if I you know, I guess you can still just be uh, I don't know. I don't. I think of somebody in a really extreme case now. I'm not saying that the man ever was, but we look at Hitler. We say Hitler was one of God's elect. Could he ever? Let's put this way: Could one of God's elect end up like, or end up being Hitler-like? <laughs> well, yeah. I, 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 honestly, well, honestly, I would put that in. The- category of philosophy because nobody can know that. And now what we can easily say is according to scripture, I have no reason to believe that he was any any such he, there was no goodness in that man whatsoever. No, he was demon possessed completely but <laughs> I'm just you know just being extreme and an example. Maybe you're right in his philosophy, but I guess Well I, in other words the re, I'm trying to answer that with that's an easy one. No. But we, how can we possibly judge, you know, the heart? We can't. So now we've gone from easy answer into kind of it becomes a philosophical debate because according to all scriptural accounts and all evidence that's logical and visible and simple and rational, no. That is not what the, the life of a Christian bears. And there's no secret, um, you know, secret goodness, you know, there. You know, now here's a, here's one. If we if we want to stay in scripture and in the context there, what about Samson? Well, you know, here I, is an ant- that was the first I was going to go to. It's like <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. No, no. Oh, let's 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 discuss. You know, you yeah. got Samson. What about Samson? He didn't live a very holy life. 
But the Bible interprets Samson's faith in Hebrews, lists Samson in what we, in the modern day, you know, we call it the hall of faith, you know, there in Hebrews, I think it's 11. You know, Samson's listed there as being a man of faith. Huh, that's interesting. See, God is revealing to us that Samson wasn't uh, doing anything in and of his own strength, in and of his own might. Very, very powerful, you know, thing being given to us there in the, the historical account of Samson. God's revealing to us how to interpret that in Hebrews, that he was a man of faith, that his trust and belief was in God. And so should we live like Samson? I would highly not recommend it because Samson suffered the consequences of that. See, David suffered the consequences of his sin. All of us suffer the consequences of our sin, and others do around us. What about Solomon? There you go. Solomon suffered the consequences as well. But you see, his salvation comes through faith. So his, his works or his following the law as laid out in the Old Testament, um, that is what Samson was uh, held to, and that was, you, that was only possible through faith. That was, in other words, you didn't do those things based on merit. You did those things because God had commanded it, and by faith you believed that what God said is what was not only good and necessary, but is what you could fully rely on that bringing your salvation. So Abraham, it was counted to him as righteous by what? By faith. In other words, Abraham trusted God, trusted in what God's word said. When God told Abraham to do this, Abraham goes and does it. Why? Because it's God's word, and he trusts it. You know, and what is that ultimately always pointing us to? What is the type and shadow all throughout the Old Testament Christ? So when we look at Samson's life, we think, hmm, not a very sanctified life. So we certainly don't want to judge salvation or the lack thereof based on what we can see, primarily or totally or completely, but we can certainly challenge somebody like Samson, and Samson certainly was, to remind them of the consequences of sin and disobedience, but also keep pointing them to Christ. Because it, it, just, just because they may be struggling with sin doesn't just take them out altogether, as the Pharisees would have you think. You know, uh, 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 and Pharisees, by the way, adding their own laws in, you know. I mean, they wouldn't just, you know, punish the criminal. They would get a little extra off the criminal, you know what I'm saying? I mean, the guy's already committed a crime, so why not have him pay the price that God's law requires and a little extra on the side for our inconvenience? See, they were twisting things and morphing things and doing what corrupt men do, but, see, they were doing it behind and in, on behalf of the name of God, which is worse. You know, Samson may have lived a sinful life, and there's certainly no condoning of it in Samson's story, but he believed. And that belief, that faith was given to him. And that is where, you know, our faith needs to be pointed to. So you could be struggling with the sin, I could be struggling with the sin, and we could say, God, why haven't we delivered us from the sin? But see, maybe God is drawing us, saying, hey, you choose it every time, buddy boy. You keep going back to what's easier or what's more satisfying to you, but see, I'm going to draw you to me through recognizing the consequence of your sin, 
by dealing with, you know, what you choose to do. And see, he, he just starts drawing. His, let me give you an example, a practical one. You know, I tell my daughter, don't do that. You know, I, let's, let's use the stovetop analogy. Don't touch the stovetop. You know, and she's giggling at me. You think she's being all cute and smart and stuff. She's getting her hand real close. Now, as a dad, you know, I mean, I've pulled her hand away from the stove hundreds of times. And by the way, this is a little Puritan disclaimer. The story I'm telling you is not necessarily true, you know. Sure. But uh, it's just to give you an analogy here that, you know, she goes to put her hand by the fire, and I, as her father, say, you know what? I'm going to let her get her hand. And her hand is only going to get so close. I mean, she's going to feel that heat. It might even burn her a little bit. But you know, she's going to figure it out real quick. I, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this one out. So you say no, and you say no, and you say no, and you say no, and finally she says, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. Now, here's my daughter, my daughter exercising her quote-unquote free will against dad's will. Who wins? She's going to touch that hot stove, and it's not going to take very long for her to realize and, you know, again, you might have a stubborn kid who does it a couple of times, and you're like, oh, boy, you know? Now, again, let's not get too far away with the analogy here that I don't necessarily recommend that parents teach this way or anything like that. That's my, you know, again, it's just to get the, the, the concept in that sometimes we let our children do things that we know that are, you know, within the bounds of their relative safety that, you know, hey, you know what? <laughs> do you want to keep rebelling? You're going to suffer the consequence there. You know, you want to play with fire, you might get burned. And the, the teaching of that is because as they get older and mom and dad aren't necessarily looking over their shoulder every five seconds, what are they going to do? And see, God is dealing with us in the same sense. Now, if God left us up to our own free will, that would be very unloving of God because we are like little children, you know? We aren't really all that bright. We think ourselves to be really bright and smart, but it's only because of God's grace and his provision for us that we even have any blessings. So we go, okay, I'm well within the confines of my safety net and all that. I'm going to go ahead and touch the hot stove because I am I just like this little game I'm playing with Dad where, you know, I'm in control. And what happens? I get my hand sizzled. Who's the first person I go running to? You know, Dad. So what does Dad do? Right? And so this concept here is I'm going to... Okay, do you want your sin? There it is. God is, does, God is, by his sovereign decree, by his omnipotent, you know, omnipresent, you know, I mean, being all-powerful, all-knowing, he is able, like any earthly father can relate to or understand, to discipline us in ways that benefit not only his children, but ultimately bring glory and put our focus upon him. And so that is, and ultimately that his will be done. So that's the key thing there. I, as a father, am going to instill my will in my children. They're going to do as the father says for their own good, but also, right, type and shadow here for Christian parents out there, type and shadow of God and Christ and the scripture. See, this is why parenting is such a big deal. Now, anyone who thinks that you're God over your kids, eh, anyone who thinks they're Jesus to their kids, eh, you're missing the concept there. But the point is, is that they're raising your children in accordance with Scripture means that you're going to be pointing to Christ, right? Which means, guess what? As a parent, you might have to say, hey, look, 
kiddo, when they're old enough to understand this, and you, you've already instilled some of this in them, hey, I'm a sinner too. You know, I make mistakes too, and I need God's forgiveness too, and, and I need your mom's forgiveness every once in a while, and I, I might even need your forgiveness because I'm a sinner, and I make mistakes. Now, see, some people would tell you that being a good Christian parent means perfection and letting your kid think that you're perfect or something like that. Well, eh, you're not God. You're not Jesus. Don't, don't start off with that. Don't, don't try and convince your kids that you're perfect because you're a Christian or something, and that's what the Christian life is about. See, we have to have faith in God's Word. If I teach and preach God's Word to my kids, that it will have the impact, the effect, the fruit that only God can bear in them. So I, if I'm worried about my kids being raised improperly, you know, or, you know, following up, then where is my faith And what God has promised me, that if I teach them the, the, his word, that if I discipline and, and correct them according to his instruction for parents in the Bible, you know, uh, that I shouldn't be an unruly master over my wife or my children, that I should be gentle with my wife and love her as Christ loves the church, and that I should, you know, again, be responsible with my children and that I don't draw them to anger, that I don't provoke them, that I don't just rule over them, right, but that I'm teaching them, that I'm teaching them how to obey, not just to obey, but how to obey, as God does with me. God doesn't just say obey, but he teaches me how to obey. And, and see, that's the thing here. Sometimes with sin, you know, God may let us suffer the consequences. So Samson, he certainly allowed it. In fact, he ordained that through Samson's decisions that he would be glorified in that. He did this. Joseph admitted the same thing, which, by the way, Joseph is one of the most, one of the most important typological shadows of Christ in the, in the Old Testament. But what did he tell his brothers? And by the way, this is, the, this is an argument against free will, and the sense it has to do with salvation here, is that it's, the Bible says that Joseph's brothers sought to kill him, but God restrained them. So there goes their free will. You know, they actually desired to kill him, but God restrained them. Okay, so then Joseph says, look, when they were repenting and apologizing and, you know, confessing to Joseph their, their wickedness, he said, look, what you took for evil, what you did, what you did by your own free will, God used that. And he did it to what? To shape Joseph, to mold Joseph, to prepare Joseph, to uh, to chasten him. Because God, by his decree, had set a time and a place and a person to tell the story, to be the person, so on and so forth. So, for example, you have Rick Warren out there saying, find your purpose. What a bunch of nonsense. As if, as if, I mean, seriously, how depressing is that? I mean, that's all law. You better find your purpose. But you see, people don't realize you're being given the law. Oh, yeah, Rick Warren dresses it up really nice. He's like, oh, God has a purpose for you, and he wants you to, you know, he, he just wants you to, and he'll use all sorts of, you know, again, very cleverly kind of pull out scripture out of context and get your eyes focused in on you and, as if Jesus is like the master guru, but he's really wanting to equip you to be like the master guru or something. Very twisted, because there's, there's a lot of truth there. I mean, he's certainly using truth. There is some biblical truth, but he's twisting it. He's putting the focus on you and taking it off of Christ. And 
but he's doing it in the name of Christ so that you feel like you're honoring God. And then here's what he leaves you with, law. He says, find your purpose. Go out and find your... Well, here's the problem. Uh, first of all, what are you talking about? Where is that command given in Scripture, A? B, I don't remember the apostles or the disciples or any of the early church fathers or historical... Like, I don't hear any of them talking about finding their purpose. That seems like a very cultural, social, modern thing. It, it doesn't seem to tie in with the, the body of Christ throughout history or even what's found in Scripture. But not only that, it's law, because it's something that I must do in order for God to bless me. It's something I must do in order to feel good about myself, something I must do in order to, ha- to know if I belong to God or not. Because what if I can't find my purpose? What if I don't know what my purpose What if I'm just a bus driver, single, 50, you know, maybe one too many trips at Jay in the day, and I drive a bus? I mean, what what could be my purpose then? How does the gospel and God's word apply to me? And see, what people don't realize is that what the tickling ears want to hear is actually condemning them. Because all Rick Warren is doing is giving them dressed-up flowers law. I mean, he's already cut them from the root. He's, you know, they're dead, but he's put them in a vase with a glass of water with a little bit of food, and you're going to have a short little season of feeling like, oh, how beautiful. Oh, how wonderful are these flowers. But they're going to be dead in less than a week when Christianity is well-rooted in good soil. It's been planted in good soil and seed producing fruit and attached to the vine who is Christ, so on and so forth. You know, and, and, and it's back to the gospel. That's where we grow. And how do we understand who God is? By his mercy. How, I mean, what is I mean, what is the Bible telling us? To come to God through the law? No, that's what condemns us. The Bible's telling us that we, that we come to understand who God is through his mercy and forgiveness and grace. And you cannot know that. This is the proper application of the gospel here. You cannot know God's love, forgiveness, mercy, grace without first understanding the law. So if you think you're righteous, if you think you have any righteousness in you, you've got a problem. You need to be given the law. You need to be reminded that you sin against God even in the very thought. (laughs) Deceiving yourself as somehow being pleasing to God by your own strength than anything that you could do. That even if right now you have perfect righteousness, that you must have had it from the beginning, that you must have never, that is what God requires. What did Jesus say? If you want to get into heaven by your own righteousness, you're going to have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. You're going to have to be better than them. In fact, the standard is is that you're going to have to be perfect from the beginning. So even if you've somehow achieved righteousness today, you haven't always, and so you are guilty of sin, and you will be punished under the law. And so, you know, again, that's why we have to be reminded, hey, guys, where is the gospel in what Rick Warren's preaching? He's using Jesus' name. He's, well, okay, people say, well, Rick Warren, Rick Warren, you know, who cares? Sorry, I just came up with a phrase there, you know, <laughs> you know. Rick Warren, Mishmore, and whatever, okay? You know, it, what does he matter? Well, okay, first of all, we all know his name, A. B, 
there are so many people following his model. Okay, it's a big deal, especially in the American church. It's a big deal. He's having a huge influence. Not only that, look, look at some of the other people. Now, again, what are these, what are these doctrines reminiscent of? You know, we could get into all that. We've been on for a couple hours here. I won't get into all this stuff. And not because, I, you know, not because I'm afraid to or don't want to, because I know you covered a lot of this on your show. So I, we don't necessarily have to go down this road after a two-hour conversation, but you've covered the stuff on the show. We have a great example of what false doctrine looks like according to Scripture. You know, you have Roman Catholicism, you have the, the headship of the papacy over the church proclaiming and professing Christianity. But see, you see a lot of contradiction to Scripture. You see a lot of blaspheming going on in the very names and the titles that the Pope declares for himself. And no matter how pious and humble he comes off, you know, he's just simply using words, you know. Uh, he's a sinner like every single one of us. You know, he's got sin just like everyone else. And now that's like the new thing. That's the new humble, you know, pie and all that that he's serving up these days. But historic Christianity has properly interpreted, you know, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and who the papacy is. And I, I know you've covered this on your show, but the reason why I'm pointing them out and not going into elaborate detail is they're a great example of what it looks like. So let's take their doctrines and see where they are in regards to what we're talking about here. You know, divine direct revelation, um, you know, scripture being good, being important, but not necessarily the authority, right? Because they, they hold tradition to be just as authoritative, which is very dangerous, as we, as we well know. Okay, so you see that in the church, you know, you see people saying, hey, the Bible's a good thing, it's really great, but you know, I mean, <laughs> Does it really mean everything it says? I mean, you know, culturally, I mean, are women supposed to preach? I mean, isn't that kind of outdated, old-fashioned? You know, see, it, it gets our eyes off of, well, no, Scripture actually says that women cannot preach and teach and be a pastor over men in the church. It doesn't mean women don't have a role in teaching. It doesn't mean women don't have a role in the church. It's just the Bible tells us very clearly that that's not it, that that, that position is reserved for the order of things that God has set up through men. And men aren't to do with that authority certain things that they try to do. But should we follow the world's argument? Should we kind of pick up their, their word games and say, well, you know, maybe we should take it easy or maybe we should go with culture on this? you know, and kind of adapt so we don't look like a bunch of bigots. Hello, world, or sorry, hello, I would say not world, but hello, listening audience, you know. Uh, hasn't the world accused us of that all along? Or were they not accusing Christ himself and his apostles and the disciples of being this, that, and the other? I mean, did you know that Christians used to be called atheists? I mean, look at that history, the word atheism, where it comes from, how it was used throughout history. It wasn't always used in the way that it's being used today. You know, it's just, my point is this, is that we're going to be accused of all sorts of things. But when God's word says this is how it ought to be, we should just trust it and say, you know, it's kind of hard considering my culture and my environment and, you know, the political correctness of the day. But you know what? I believe in God's word. I trust God's word. 
And I believe that it is sufficient and that is the authority and that his words coming off the pages in the black and white text are as if he were whispering into my ear less than a breath away. It is the very voice of God for his people. And when he says, this is how it ought to be, that's how it ought to be. And that the blessing of, of God is in his commands for us. That his commands are not just good to us, but good for us. They glorify God in revealing both his justice and grace and his righteousness and mercy, his holiness and his kindness, you know, so on and so forth. So uh, we've got a lot of problems in the world today, and there's a lot of preachers and teachers who, you know, unfortunately aren't being called out as, as frequently and as often as uh, they should be by Christians. You want to know why? Because they're off chasing bunny rabbits. I'll be honest with you. Because because they're not, they, they, they are isolating themselves. And, you know, when I see the reformers, um, that's not what I saw. There's a bunch of isolated men, you know, running scared or something. I saw them unifying with the church and by the work of God, the Holy Spirit, through their nations and through their towns and villages, uniting them to one voice and saying, this is what Scripture says. You, sir you, ma'am, you, whatever, are a false teacher. You are not teaching what, what Scripture says. Now, I see the solution to not only America's problems, okay, because America isn't all that there is in the world, but the problems of the world are sin, and the solution to our problem is Christ, through the gospel, not through the law, but through the gospel, believing that preaching that Christ bled and died for the forgiveness of sins, according to Scripture, physically that happened. That's a reality. That's not a mystical allegory of me resurrecting my job promotion or something like that. Christ literally died and physically and literally bodily rose again because he was God manifest in the flesh. He paid it anyway, the gospel message. That being preached will reach the hearts and minds of men according to God's good pleasure. And if he has not seen fit to show his grace, we trust him because he has shown his people and he has revealed it to however many people that is in our nation or in our town or in our village. And we are pleased and we are rejoicing because God is good and he has been good to us. And he is just as good in his righteousness and in his holiness and in his justice as he is in revealing his mercy to five people or to a thousand or to ten million. I've seen the work of the Reformation. I believe in the power and might of my God. I am not afraid of this time and this era. Because even though it's dark and bleak, even though it's cold and scary, God's light is still shining, and the warmth of that light is still hot. He is, he is in control. And I never saw throughout history panic in total freaking out in the church unless it was based on a lack of faith and unbelief and fear. So, you know, and again, that's quickly corrected. You know, that's quickly corrected, but I'm not going to get into all that. I just want to leave on a positive note here in the sense that that is what our eyes should be focused on because it not only is a strength, we not only need it to be reminded, 
in our struggles and in our battle with sin, our own personal sins. But hey, it's consistent, it's simple, it's biblical, and it's historic. That message just continuing on. Christ, 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 and Him crucified. That is what that is what will, will carry us through another age, another dark time, another culture, another society, so on and so forth. And may we pray, you know, may we continually pray God's will as we know it will be done, that God's will in our life, God's will in our, our transformation, our understanding to be focused on his will and not our own, you know, in other our, our minds, sorry, I jumped ahead there, that our minds would be transformed and renewed according to scripture in seeing his will being pointed out to us. In other words, trust, faith. It's getting late. I'm starting to you know, my thoughts are now jumbled together in my words and stuff, but let us leave on that note, you know, of saying that's our focus and, you know, that. Okay. Well, well, but, by, the way, <laughs> by the way, you did wonderful. You did wonderful. God, uh, thank you, Heavenly Father, and Jesus Christ, for this wonderful evening. And thank you for uh, blessing. Uh, our, our brother uh, Ryan Ryan Taylor with the ability to share the truth and the, your gospel and uh, you didn't ramble on my friend you didn't ramble at all on at all in fact I was enjoying so much just listening to it I was like wow uh, really nice it is really nice I mean I don't want to stroke your ego and all that kind of thing but God uh you have a calling, my friend, and that calling is to do what you do tonight. And um, it cares. It's you know, as you mentioned. You know, we're not out to get the praise of men, and um, we're out here to praise our Lord and our Heavenly Father, our Lord and Savior, and that has been done for us, and what God is doing. So. I think it was great. Well, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And uh, what are you going to say, Glenn? Well, I was wondering if uh, um, I could read one one church in prayer here. Actually, devotional prayer. I don't know which one this is, but uh, it's very short, so it's not very long. You know you can. In fact, if you know it, if you want to do this <laughs> for the next five hours, we can do it. So. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I'll, I'll just read this and... Uh, and uh, uh, Yeah, it's kind of on the topic we've been talking about tonight. So, O Lord, I hang on Thee, I see, believe, live, when Thy will, not mine, is done. I can plead nothing in myself in regard of any worthiness and grace, in regard of Thy providence and promises, but only Thy good pleasure. If Thy mercy make me poor and vile, blessed be Thou. Prayers arising from my needs are preparations for future mercies. Help me to honor thee by believing before I feel. For great is the sin if I make a feeling a cause of faith. Show me what sins hide from me and eclipse thy love. Help me to humble myself for past evils, to be resolved to walk with more care. For if I do not walk holy before thee, 
how can I be assured of my salvation? It is the meek and humble who are shown thy covenant. Know thy will, are pardoned and healed, who by faith depend and rest upon grace, who are sanctified and quickened, who evidence thy love. Help me to pray in faith and so find thy will, by leaning hard on thy rich mercy, by believing thou wilt give what thou hast promised. Strengthen me to pray with the conviction that whatever I receive is thy gift so that I may pray until prayer be granted. Teach me to believe that all decrees of mercy arise from the several degrees of prayer, that when faith is begun, it is imperfect and must grow, as chapped ground opens wider and wider until the rain comes. So shall I wait thy will, prayer, for it to be done, and by thy grace become fully obedient. Very nice. Very, very nice. Totally focused on God. A whole time just focused on God and what he's able to do and what he needs to do. And it's really, yeah. Amen to that one, you know. And amen to your prayer, too, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah. I was just talking. <laughs> I was just talking to you and God. So I was talking about, talking to God and you. So, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, um, great stuff, my friend. Very good stuff. I uh, feel very blessed tonight. Thank you for recharging my batteries. And uh, uh, I'm sure other folks are going to get something out of this, too. Um, because probably for just like myself, it's probably the first time they ever heard half this stuff. Come out of somebody who was capable of talking this way outside of a sermon from, you know, Spurgeon or something like <laughs> that. I know you said there's there's, oh, other, there's other guys out there, to, you know, that, that preachers and pastors that are are doing a good job, but um, and I'm not going to argue with that. It's, but I have not found any that really has reached me yet. So the present day. Well, it, when, yeah. in a, when in a drought, go to Spurgeon. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You know, go back. It's it's amazing how it's like everything. It's like. If, uh, you don't have to, but I mean, if my discovery has been if you go 100 years to the past, you get more accurate history, more uh, real preaching, more understanding of the Bible, the uh, commentaries, everything. Is, it's just it's spot on. And today we're just in a confused state where they are. Uh, Weakening and feminine, uh, feminizing the church. You got come on, Rick Warren just mentioned it in brief uh, Wednesday. Some kind of they in Congress with Elton John holding Elton John's hand and and making oh, yeah. like, oh, really effeminate and gay type of comments. And I'm just like you know. Well, things are really, really weird right now. But like you said, you know, it's one of those things. You know, it's um, it's a very, it's very much a time to get back to remembering God. You know what I mean? I, I it's I 
how do I say this? Well, yeah, that's what it is. I mean, the more and more I do this, the more I realize how it's really important to have this message for sure tonight in our hearts and in our minds, first and foremost. And um, regardless of what the near future has to hold, and you know, things aren't going to, uh, as far as the world goes, it's not going to get any easier for us. We have to accept that as far as what the world's going through and what's going to do, what's, what's happening, or to our eyes. <clears throat> and um, we just got to, like you said, remember God, praise Him, and thank goodness He didn't give up on us. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and um, regardless of what we go through, we, you know, there's, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. And God is not only, uh, let me, let me bump this up a notch. God is not only, not just, you know, he's not done with us, you know, he's, he's not just forgotten us or left us here. No, no, he's, Michael, he's going to display and he is displaying his might through his people. You know, and yes, it is a dark hour, no, no no, doubt about it. And, you know, it's so funny how you just said about history, you know, you go back 100 years, and you not only got taught, taught, or hit, taught proper history, but you got taught proper doctrine. Oh. I mean, those guys were serving up steak dinners every night. You know, we're barely on skilled milk nowadays, if not GMO artificial flavored milk. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know whatever analogy would fit there, you know, it, it's, see, the great thing is, is that we can definitely been pasteurized and homogenized. That's what's happening. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, is, is it even milk? Yeah, but it, it, see, the thing is, is God's mind is displayed in this sense, that, you know, uh, that there isn't some physical, you know, uh, you know, this is, remember how Jerusalem thought Jesus would be their Messiah, how they, how they, or uh, Israel thought that Jesus would be, you know, how he would come, how he's supposed to come and all that, and yet he came as a humble servant, as a lamb. You know, uh, well, okay. So let us be reminded in this sense that how is God's might and glory displayed today? Is it through a victoring army? Is it, is it through a, a conquering nation? Is it through a, you know, prosperous church? Or is it through the humble words of the text of scripture and the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ following the scriptures. See, to the world, they're like, that's dumb. What, Ryan, what you just said right there is dumb. That's so lame. You know, what's cool about that? See, but see, this testifies this because, Michael, you and I should not know what we know. We shouldn't really have even ever sniffed a remnant of the gospel. We shouldn't even be familiar with it. Because not only are things so confusing today, but really the popular gospel of today is not the one that you and I now know. You know, to see the enemy, he's no no victor. You know, God is our victor. God is the victor. Um, And the blessing, the, the, the amazing thing about God it's not that he sends people to hell. It's that he saves us. And we all deserve the same thing. 
And so to be able to call him our God is what's amazing. But he is a victor, and he is conquering according to his will. Remember what Martin Luther said there in his little uh, in his article? He said, using Satan, see that? Not even Satan escapes the will of God. Satan thinks that by his rebellion, by his pursuit to conquer God or something like that, that he's actually going to win. But see, God's simply using him as an instrument of wrath. He never even escapes the will of God, not even for a second. And that's why Job didn't want to credit Satan for any of his suffering. Because let's not forget what happened to Job. Job's sitting down there, has a relatively good life, big family. They're, you know, we have no indication that any of them were, you know, wicked people. But in fact, Job was so concerned for his family that he often prays for them and sacrifices for them. And he seemed to have things going really well. A holy man, godly man, great family, great life. And what does God do? God and his sovereign will, what does he do? He offers up Job. He says, hey, Satan, what are you up to? Satan says, oh, I'm just looking who I can eat up next, you know, whom I can devour. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, what is Job going through all the stuff that he was going through, all the hardship, all the suffering that he went through? He, he, when, what did his wife tell him to do? She had enough. And she wasn't even suffering the blunt of it. What did she say? Just curse God and die already. Right? Because what did they, what did they understand in their time? You know, to curse God almost certainly meant death. You know? And there was other, in other words, it was, it was the equivalent of saying suicide by God. You know? Just curse God and die. But Job trusted God. God had... It had formed Job, had made Job, had created Job, and then offered him up according to his own free will and his good pleasure and his purpose in revealing himself to us. See, Job went through what Job went through by God's will, and guess what? You and I get to read about Job and understand not only the typological shadows of Christ in this story, but there's practical application for you and I as Christians in our everyday living right there in Job. And Job, not once, did he give credit to Satan. He didn't say, I need, to get out my, I need to get out my holy oil and start sprinkling my house, or I need to start praying better, or I need to find my purpose, or I need to get back into doing, you know, I need to do some law-keeping so that I can get right with... No, he, there wasn't, he, didn't, he wasn't fighting with the enemy, and he wasn't... He wasn't um, you know, he, he didn't lose his faith in who God was the whole time. Now, we see his struggle. We even see Job's sins there. You know, he even confesses them in the end. But the point is, is here God offers him up. Here he goes through this trying time, but he's not once giving credit to the enemy because he knows that God is the one who's in control. And that if God sees fit for him to suffer this way, well, who is he to tell God what to do and actually, that's humbleness, that's humility, and that's, that's exalting God and, humbling, and being humbled. And, and, and it's just it's such a faraway thought today for modern-day Christianity 
you know, to think that God has the freedom and the will to do as he pleases, even in our suffering. Because what do we know about um, how God can use that? I mean, look at Joseph's life, how many years he went through what he went through. You know, offered up by his own family into slavery, and then to be uh, battered around, essentially, you know, false accusations, and ends up in prison, and then he's in prison, you know, longer because, you know, I mean, on and on it goes, this guy doesn't get a break. How many years? I mean, for you and I, and we read that story in what, maybe a couple hours, and you want, to, you want to dig into it a little bit and all that. And we're talking about years and years and years of a man's life. How many of us would have given up in the first five seconds <laughs> and called God out on his injustice towards us? You know? God, how could you let this happen to me? You know? Shows a total lack of faith on our part that, you know, we think that, you know, somehow the enemy is winning today. You know, it shows a total lack of faith on our part that any sort of suffering that we endure politically, you know, or as a, as a nation, or um, even even in the church, that, you know, oh, God, how could you allow such a horrific, oh, you know, have your justice on the wicked. You know, not realizing, hello, ding, 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 God is in control. And that whatever we, you know, are dealing with here, he's revealing himself either to his people or by his justice over the blind. You know, uh, the, the blind, and I, I shouldn't say that, because we're all blind until he, helps, until he opens our eyes, upon the rebellious. You know, on, upon the wicked who, who don't, do not want the things of God, whose hearts are hardened against, you know, him. And what do we, what do we just look around, and you're like, man, it's really bad. Yeah, true. I doubt about it, especially considering, you know, what did we know before? You know, what, what have we experienced before? You know, the comforts and the luxuries and the pleasures of, you know, our sin and our blindness and our ignorance, you know, and that God has dealt with us and, you know, and revealed himself to us and, and had mercy upon us and corrected us and rebuked us and, you know, ex, you know, encouraged us and uplifted us. And, you know, now we know, what we know. we're looking out at the world, we see all this crazy stuff. If for a second we think that God's not in control, something's wrong. You know, if by his hand he has carried us this far, he's revealed this much, he's taught us, you know, and if for a second we think we, that it's too big, that God is somehow depending upon us, we've got something wrong here. And something's messed up in our thinking, you know, because God is displaying his might in and through his people. Some who are a great example. I mean, look at the lives of the Puritans. I mean, if you need a, if you need a checkup on holiness, you got some brothers and sisters in Christ who will, who will give you a good, hearty, you know, wake-up call about living a sanctified life, a dedicated life unto the Lord. You know, we also have other examples, you know, not only uh, throughout history, but today of, you know, faithful preachers who are, Defending the gospel, you know, and, um, you know, I mean, it's so funny how, you remember when Paul said that some people had a personal issue against him, and, but he said, you know what, just essentially let it go because they're, they're preaching the gospel and that's, that's all that matters.
you know, so here, you know, these guys are kind of picking on Paul, you know, and they've got some personal thing going on. The Bible doesn't really tell us what it is, but, you know, it's obviously grievous to Paul, but he's, he's saying, look, it's, you know, ultimately if they're preaching the gospel correctly, you know, what's it matter? Let them preach the gospel. That's all I care about. Now, how many of us are, I mean, could not be convicted and challenged with the idea how much of the how much of importance is the gospel for us? You know, I mean, and on the other side of that too is uh, you'll always find that. In other words, you know about the grievance that they had towards them. While we, as brothers in Christ, we will always find some. At some point, you will find a grievance about me, and I'll find a grievance about you, and we have to learn to. Let it go and see, you know, what's the priority? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, uh, my brother's imperfection or um, God, his gospel, his work. Um, that's Good point. You know Good point. Because, I mean? you know, that's the thing that we always find. I mean, let's be honest, you know. I mean, uh, well, you don't have to be honest, but I'll be honest about myself. You know, <laughs> uh, past relationships, you know, I've always, you know, very, I, I, I know for a fact that uh, the ex or exes, they all found plenty of things to be grievous about me, <laughs> and I found a few things about them, and we still, you know, at least for a while, loved each other. Because <laughs> we didn't have, we didn't have Lord the Christ in our life, we didn't have the you know, the Spirit of God working in us, so it was an inevitable to not sustain itself because, uh, you know, we are what we are, fallen creatures, full of sin, and so But my point being is is that all meaningful relationships are challenging, and we have to just remember what that which is meaningful about it. And, of course, there's nothing more meaningful in a man's life is than God. So, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Always bring it back yeah. to that. Bring it back to that. And, um, well, and I, I want, I want the freedom. I want the freedom that God promises and gives and freely gives to his people from my own junk. You know what I mean? Now, this, don't get me wrong here. I don't want to go down the, the, uh, the path that some have twisted this into where, you know, I'm only focused on dealing with me and, and you know, I'm not going to judge other people. And all. That's not what I mean here. I, I, I want to make that disclaimer clear, but I, but I want to understand this promise on a personal level, you know, where I can, you know, see God working in my life to get rid of my own sins. My, the things that personally distance me from God in my own life. And that right there should be our primary focus. Because the benefit there is is for his people. It's, it's there for you. And then in that exchange, or in that, that not exchange, but uh, yeah, I guess you could, I mean, God's freely giving us here, but in that whole process, we become a blessing in, um, you know, kind of like, a, a, you know, iron sharpens iron here. We become a blessing to the body of Christ and the people around us, you know, of faith in Christ because he's working in and through that, us and he's working in and through them. And, you know, it's kind of like saying, you know, you've got a family and, 
and the kids, you know, they're they're all young, and they, they what is the thing the kids do? They're always fighting. I mean, one minute they love each other, and the next minute they're fighting, and you know, it seems like they're always kind of getting into some trouble there. But as they grow and mature, and their parents, you know, guide them and instruct them and raise them up, you know, their relationship becomes more meaningful together. And you know, you'll find that all throughout church history. I mean, that, that is what you know. There's bickering and fighting, yes. You know, but we know who God is, we know who our Savior is, we know who we are in Christ, you know, and all that taking place, we're unified under the gospel, we we, we have confidence in, in the family and in the church, you know, and yes, a lot of that stuff is messed up right now, but I am not afraid of God the Father being a good Father and setting things, you know, not giving us more than we can handle, not allowing things to get out of control and to, and to such a degree that, you know, it's just there's no truth, there's no life, no way. You know, God has promised us that that will not happen, that the gates of hell will not prevail, right. that truth will remain, that his word will remain, that his church will remain, you know, and um, and, uh, and when, when you start reading your Bible, you're going to start, you know, finding, you know, by the way, you know, I... My sister um, brought this up with me a, a while ago. She was like, you know, I try and read the Bible, and it's really hard to understand, you know. And I know a lot of people who will, who will say, you know, well, you, there's been, been God's not working in you. And, you know, you better be very afraid that you don't understand everything that God's Word says, and, you know, they'll kind of whip you, whip you around and, and make you afraid. Mm-hmm. And, yes, there's a little... There's a little bit of truth in that, but is that the proper application of it? Is that the... No, because we also have faithful preaching and teaching. You know, and all you have to do is, you know, you pull you get a sermon, you get your hands on a good sermon, and, you know, if you're able to, you know, I, uh, look, here's, here's a guide for people. Look for a reformed, you know, a historically reformed preacher. You know, somebody who's not afraid to admit that they are in agreement with historic Christianity or in the Reformed faith, you know? And, and, but even then, you pull up the sermon, you open up your Bible, and you just sit there and take notes. Is the guy pointing you to Christ as the Bible lays it out? Is, are, you, are you being taught, you know, repentance and forgiveness, uh, you know, uh, law, gospel? Are, are those things being pointed out? Or is the guy telling you about his summer vacation and how, you know, if his summer vacation was resurrected or something like I mean, if it's all allegory and all euphemisms and, you know, very philosophical sounding, you know you're dealing with somebody who's not right like, you know, in God's Word if they're even using it at all, you know? And so, in other words, we, we ought to tell people, trust in God, the Holy Spirit. Open up your Bible, read it, ask God to reveal to you what He desires you know and focus on, and Relax, you know, don't rest, you know, in, inappropriately thinking, oh, you know, oh, you know, God will just show it to me when he's ready. No, there's, there's got to be this longing, and if there isn't this longing, pray that God would instill the desire in you. People are like, what? Oh, yeah, when I talk about God, I talk about depending upon him fully, you know? So if one day I wake up and I don't really feel like reading my Bible, guess what I do? I say, I repent. God See, here I am again, not really wanting to read my Bible. I pray that you give me the desire, Father. Give me the desire to 
long and hunger like it's like it's food that I must have. That before my meal, I would want to eat from God's word instead. You know that like I want to hunger for His word, and I'm not, and I repent, and I need you to give that to me. I need I, I am dependent upon you. And guess what? Sometimes I walk away and I find myself not reading. Who's to blame? Do I do I turn around and I blame God and say, "Oh, it's all your fault. You didn't give it to me." No, I suspect right then and there that God is. Uh, you're, you're you're kind of showing me I'm 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 a hypocrite. You're kind of showing me here that I'm I'm paying a little lip service, you know. And and then other times I am drawn to His Word, and I'm sitting there going, "Thank you, thank you, Father." I, I mean, I knew I needed this, but my flesh didn't want it. Like, and yet here you go. You're, you've given freely yet again. You're drawing me close. And, and I'm rambling, or not? You know, I'm, I'm kind of losing the point here. You know, let me get back on the point. That it's okay to tell people, hey, li- listen. You may not understand everything right out of the gate. You may some days you may open up your Bible and scratch your head. But it's a, get some good. Get just a couple of known. You know, um, like I said, reformed preachers, you know, and test what they're saying with scripture as to the, you know, again, the best you can. God, God understands the situation we're in nowadays. And they're, you know, again, I, I mean, I'll give you names, you know, I mean, I, I got a list of names if anyone's interested. And, and or even here, even better yet, go back to historic Christianity. Read some of Martin Luther's work, read some of Charles Spurgeon's sermons. You know, um, read some of the reform stuff. I mean, these guys preached heavy, you know, good, uh, simple doctrine. You know, I mean, when we say simple, we don't mean light. Okay? They just, they taught it simple, but some of the stuff is, you know, heavy. You know, and, and you just don't, you're not, it's not a part of our, our modern day diet anymore. You know, but I mean, there's so many resources out there that uh, it, it just, I, I, I'm like, my brain is stumped because, I, I used to think that there was nobody out there. I used to think that there was only like a handful of people left and, or something like that. And then, you know, again, as God brought me to his word and I began to read his word and see the simplicity of the gospel, and then I, I would come across somebody who's preaching the same thing that Scripture's saying, and I'm like, okay, well, there's at least one guy, you know. And then he would mention somebody, and I'd go and investigate that other person. I'm like, okay, what, you know, what Jesuit do we have here? You know, and I thought, okay, wait, a, hold on a second here. And that, by the way, that's not a knock on anybody. I just realized that some people might misunderstand. It wasn't a knock. I'm just telling you what my thinking was. Right. You know, I was so worried that everyone was deceiving me, that there was nobody left out there telling the truth. And so I was in a really kind of a scary place because I'm like, you know, there's only like, there's only dead guys in history. You know, like that's it. There's nobody alive today that actually you know, is preaching, well, no, that was short-lived, thankfully. I wasn't there very long, but I can see how, by God's grace, by me just following after my own heart, my own understanding, and my own ways, how I was left to a really empty, dark, depressing place, in a sense, that here my, here's what my, my, my deductive reason led to. But then when God starts revealing himself through scripture and you start seeing the simplicity of the gospel and, you know, just, and then you find somebody preaching that and then, oh, that leads to another person. And then, you know, I, I was kind of reading some of the historic stuff as I went and I'm like, man, 
I, I've heard preachers talk. I've heard people, just like the Reformers are saying, they, they agree with what the Reformers said. And next thing you know, I find a more honest picture, you know, that God has preserved his people, that there are many people out there who are very faithful, very, you know, uh, they've been tried and tested, you know. Uh, yeah, they're men. Yep, they, they, they have some things that... Uh, they're dealing with too, and I'm not talking about uh, talking about doctrinally, not uh, you know, not you know, uh, some some other thing, you know, like uh, you know they they're driving a Ferrari and living a four million dollar home or something like something ridiculous like that. I'm just saying, you know, doctrinally I disagree with them because they kind of have stepped away from what the what the historic church has taught, but uh, it's they're not on issues regarding, you know, they're more on ecclesiastical issues such as you know dealing with things in the church, how they operate the church, or, you know, things like that. And I disagree with them, you know, um, because uh, I see a good, consistent uh, foundation laid out for us in, in historic Christianity. And, but guess what? Some of the problems that we're dealing with today are because we're walking away from that. We're walking away from what Scripture says, and, and so that's a consequence. But I'm not going to just, I'm not willing to broad stroke every man's heart as if I know, you know, I'm just going to go off what the Bible says, and that's what are they preaching? What are they teaching? What gospel are they sharing? And uh, when I do that, I see, ah, there's a lot of people out there like me who, you know, God has brought to historic Christianity, but they're still, they're still dealing with some stuff, you know? They don't like this concept of thinking that, um, you know, God is the one in control, you know? They, they struggle with that. Um, or some other issues, like as catalogical issues, where, you know, is it seven years, or is it all millennial, or, you know, and they're struggling with these things. They haven't quite all figured it out. Now, here's what I would do. I'd point them to the Reformation and say, hey, listen to the body of, you know, the historical body in hundreds of years. I mean, hundreds upon hundreds of years of theological exegesis and breaking down of, you know, history and, and prophecy. And, I mean, look, these men laid it out so clear. Like, take up your argument with them. You know, that's what I would encourage them to do. But, you know, am I going to start telling people that if they don't agree on this point or that point where Scripture does not give me permission, you know, to do that, am I going to start saying they're not safe? I can, how could I do that? Not even the Reformers would do that. You know, I, I, I mean, Martin Luther said, by the way, just so you know, he said very strongly, those who don't, he goes, I cannot fathom, I cannot really understand how anyone who doesn't know who the Pope is, is, is the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist. If, if they can't see, I can't understand how they'd be saved. Well, I don't disagree with Martin Luther. But the problem is, is that there are a lot of Christians today who oppose the doctrines of Rome, doctrines of the papacy, the doctrines of Islam, Mormonism, so on and so forth, they oppose these doctrines, but they don't know the, who the man is. So, in one sense, they're doing what Scripture says. They're opposing. They're preaching against the teachings. They're defending the gospel. But yet, God hasn't seen fit, according to his will, to reveal that part of prophecy to them. Okay, so now we have a responsibility slash accountability here. Those of us who have this understanding, 
what are we going to do with it? Are we going to use it as a whip? Or are we going to say, hey, good news. Uh, this has already been kind of flushed out throughout history. You know, this is kind of in, by the way, only for the sake of pointing us to what the truth is, not as some sort of stage or platform to start, you know, a revolution or, you know, a movement or an uprising or anything like that. But by following after who is, who is the head of our church, who, who is the good shepherd leading and guiding and taking care of his people, that's right, Christ. And I trust him to do with that knowledge and that understanding as he sees fit. And by the way, not everyone has known that at every moment in Christian history, believe it or not. And it's been debated and argued. And so I don't see it as an issue in which to condemn anybody with. I see it as a privilege and a responsibility to know and to use properly for the sake of pointing out who Christ is and what ridiculous nature and uh, dangerous nature that false doctrine is. And I have a great physical example, visible. I can just turn on CNN or you know go to Yahoo News and say, hey, here's a good example of what it looks like. Oh, wait a minute. I thought that was gorgeous and beautiful and something I should be in awe of. Oh, yeah, that's because it pleases everything about the flesh. And so that let that be a good example to you what not to follow, you know? And um, so we have to depend upon God's Word, not our experiences, our emotions, our feelings, so on and so forth. So, you know, that, that I think that's kind of the thing that's been breaking down over time is this, this thought that here's what God wants me to do. He wants me to take His truth and go and run with it. You know, it's gone from that and kind of being afraid to saying, oh, here's God's given us his truth so that I can see his hand in my own personal life, the victory that he's given me, even in dealing with my own sins, but also sharing that with others in the body and pointing them to Christ. Because, by the way, a lot of people are doing things in the name of Christ that aren't actually biblical. So we've got a lot of work here, folks. I mean, nobody should be bored. Nobody should be concerned that Christians don't have enough on their plate right now. You know, it's no different from any other time in history. It's just we're now, we're, we're obviously under uh, God is having his justice upon me. And we aren't to freak out. You know, we aren't to totally, you know, start spasming here. We should go off the example of the historic church. Remain calm, preach Christ and crucified, rejoice in the gospel that's been given to us, praise Christ as he's been revealed to us, and keep walking, keep, you know, hold fast, hold steady, you know, and, um, and know that not only God remains God, sovereign, that Christ seated upon the throne and is reigning and ruling even today, and that God, the Holy Spirit, is drawing men to the Father daily, you know? And uh, the enemy is not winning, so. Well, that was great. Thank you, my friend. Uh, thank you for sharing the evening of, and my morning at night. <laughs> I guess it's night for <laughs> this one. Um, it was great, man. I really appreciate it. Well, thank I, you hope, I hope we, we do it more often because... Uh, you know, I was thinking as I was listening to you, see, that's, that's one of the things that I noticed was, would be wrong with the corporate church today 
is the fact that they have these structured sermon that instead of following the Spirit of God and sharing these truths, and if it takes, you know, 20 minutes or 20 hours, do it. You know, I mean, don't be constrained by, you know, the hour package and to make sure that you get a little message out and then make sure it gets entertained. And I think that's what's uh, lacking in the church today. I mean, my impression, too, about, you know, the reformers, um, and probably even before that, I mean, since the early church, has been having evenings, days like this, where people did, did, did talk about, you know, not only doctrinal issues, you know, and about, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but, you know, just was willing, people just willing to spend the time to hear the truth, to speak the truth, and and, and, and allow it to happen. And, and you know, it was that time when Paul was... Uh, Sharing with, with you know the, the story where the one young man falls from the balcony because he was it all night long type of thing. Well, you know I think that probably happened quite a bit because I think that's the way it was, it's, it's supposed to be. You know what I mean? It's they have packaged it like it's a, a television series type of thing. You know what I mean? You got an hour to get it done, an hour for Sunday school, an hour for the you know, the main sermon, and it's, none of that should be, it, it shouldn't be that way. I really feel that way strongly. Um, we should be, like you said, relax, sit back, hear the Word of God. If it takes 45 minutes or four hours, so be it. Enjoy it. Count your blessings, you know what I mean? Did you even have a an opportunity like we had tonight to just uh, preach for myself and and um, those who will hear it um, uh, is the, the fact that uh, we even have this opportunity that uh, and I, I really am grateful for my friend that you have come into my life and you're willing to come on the show and to speak passionately and I recognize, you know, God has given me enough time to weed out enough of the the errors, <laughs> the doctrinal errors out there to hear that I know what I'm hearing is the truth. So, um, and that's really rewarding for me, much more rewarding than you know most things I do. I know it's important to show all the things that I do as far as exposing um, the things that are wrong, um, but just. To hear something like this is real blessing, so it's all worth it all. So, and um, yeah, I, once again, it needs to be redundant here, but I feel it needs to be. I need to be redundant. Is the the, the lack of having something like this? Everything's packaged. Just you know, this whole conditioning where you can only do it for forty-five minutes, fifty minutes, an hour. You know what I mean? You can't do it more than an hour. People that can't keep their attention span. Well, you know what? I believe that God can give us that attention span. Might have to work on, and you might have to go through practice and and experience, go and doing it over and over again. But yes, you can hear, listen to something like this, 
will you get every single thing? You never do. Even if it's uh, 15 minutes or 15 hours, you're not going to get everything. But the important things and what the Spirit wants you to hear, you'll be there. You know, if you stick around, it'll be there. He'll be there. And uh, you'll hear what you need to hear. And um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for this. So it's clear to me that one of the things that's severely lacking in the church is what we unite with through tonight. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. I mean, you know, some, some, sometimes... You know, it, it, I get what you're saying about the package deal, and, and you know, sometimes you're like, man, I, I, I so wish that they would just go a little bit further with this and, and go a little bit longer because I'm, you know, it, it's good stuff and I need to hear it. And can you imagine, cut it off because, did you imagine Spurgeon worrying about the time? Really? I mean, I mean, imagine you were, I, I, your, his traditional amount of time for a sermon. But if he was inspired for, you know, the Spirit of God, he'd be, you know, going if it took two hours or three hours. You know, I'm going for it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't stop. I mean, you couldn't stop any of those guys. They, they were oh. writing books left and right. They were preaching sermons every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I mean, you couldn't stop them. And, and here's, the, here's the good thing in all that. I think a lot of that's being corrected. You know, I think, I think a lot of that's being you know, dealt with. I think, you know, Christ is dealing with the church that way. You know, there's, there's, you know, some people will go and get a good sermon on Sunday. I mean, unfortunately, not, not everyone, not, not most people, but there are people who get a good sermon. And then they, they, you know, I'm thinking about the technology of today. I mean, Michael, I listen to sermons almost all day long. And if I'm not listening to a sermon, I'm listening to an audio book. Um, of, you know, the, some of these 100, 200-year-old books that aren't even in print anymore, but somebody has gone through and read, you know, the uh, the original, you know, scan pages and things like that. I mean, if I'm not listening to the sermon, I'm hearing, you know, I'm going back and reading some of these books that haven't been read in a long time. I mean, the technology, I can literally, when you and I are talking about a subject, I mean, I can just pull out my phone and search the internet for, you know, you know, what this guy said or what this reformer, you know, said over here. And I can pull up the history and the, I can even pull up the historical. But I mean, we have so much at our fingertips now that if we want more, we can, we can go and get more, you know? And I think some of that's being brought back into the church in the sense that, you know, through the internet or through, you know, um, just people wanting to stay connected all the time. Now, obviously, there's perversions of that. There's abuses of that. Certainly, we, we all are aware. But I also see how God is also taking that and how he's using that to, for those who are hungry, for those interested in hearing more. I mean, you can hear a great sermon by this guy over here, and then you can immediately turn on the next sermon from another guy over here, you know, or get on another podcast or read another book. I mean, it, it's making things so much more accessible. And, of course, that by nature means that it's making a whole lot of bunny trails and a whole lot of stuff that we probably ought not to be focused on, making that more accessible, too. You know, so, you know, I yes, I, I totally hear your point. Um, at the same time, I see how some of that stuff is changing. There are some 
people out there who are kind of waking up to that, that, that notion that, you know, maybe we need to make things, you know, available, you know, outside of the fact, or we need to stretch things out and kind of not be so structured because there's such a need right now for people either coming to, you know, the Reformed doctrines or the Reformed history, and there's a lot of confusing stuff out there, so we need to kind of, we need to make these documents available so that people, you know, aren't well, getting... Well, the thing is, stuff what like I'm that. seeing is we're given uh, sermons instead of teachings, and I really do believe that that's what we all need. Yeah. You know, the truth of the matter is is that, you know, yes, the gospel is extremely, it is simple. But at the same token, there's so much to learn about the church, its history, what's going on in the world. Yeah. You know, all these things, the biblical enterprise, all these things. There's a, and the more you learn and the more you grow, uh, in knowledge and in the truth, the more uh, it becomes you, becomes more alive, and it becomes more uh, of its essence, uh, important and meaningful. At least that's how I see it for me. Um, and I believe that um, what has happened in this church is it, it has been corporatized and packaged. And yeah, he's talking about the 501c3, and that's very important because it's now, the, you know, the, the church and state thing, but it's always been the church and state thing, as far as the corporate church goes. But, you know, there's, there, there has to have been a time, what you and I just experienced tonight, that was the norm. That we said, you know, a group of people got together and... There was no, you know, it was, they say it was Sunday or Saturday or Tuesday or whatever it was. And it wasn't, it wasn't a time constraint. It was a gathering, a time. It was, you know what I mean? It was, well, maybe part of it because, you know, it, you know, Satan has made our lives today so uh, frantic and everyone's just running around you know, trying to accomplish this, that, and everything else. And like for us, you know, say it's a Sunday, you know, and people are like, well, you know, church starts at 9, we'll be done at 11, and we got to get, you know, the football game, we got to go shopping, we got to go do something, you know. It, it wasn't like that back then, you know. It's, you, know you know, whether it was Saturday, Sunday, whatever day, it was set aside for God. You know what I mean? It was set aside for uh celebrating, worshiping, learning about God. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. But I don't believe I'm wrong. No, no. I totally see your point, though, because, you know, well, let me throw on this other side. You know, how much of, our, how much of us, and I'm, I'm including myself on this, but how, how many of us are, have more knowledge than we actually know how to apply? I mean, I know so, I mean, I have learned so much in the past month from all the sermons I've heard. I can't even apply all of it. You know what I mean? It, it, sometimes I feel like it would be better if I just focused on one thing and actually was able to apply that and, and, 
you know, have patience and trust in God to do that work in me. So there's that side of things. But then the other side of things is, have we simplified things so, have we formatted and simplified and structured things down, you know, so much that we're actually not getting the fullness, getting the full application. You know, for example, just we'll pull in history here. I mean, there are some great preachers out there who handle God's Word wonderfully. They exegete the text. They stay within the confines and the interpretation of what the Bible's saying. They hold. They, they stay within the historic faith, you know, as it's been preserved. But they don't really, they don't draw out some of the history. They don't, they don't pull, you know, pull into the conversation or the sermon or, you know, even teaching you know, how this has been practically applied throughout history. You know, they might mention 